Telephone Rapper. Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and here we are at the milestone 50th episode of this fine podcast, and may I say, the bonus-length, double-length 50th episode of Shut Up and Wrestle as a reward, as a gift to those of you who have been listening all this time. And even if you haven't, I present to you this extra bonus edition. I'm not going to blab too much beforehand because I want to get to the two hours of glorious conversation with my guest this week, as I have announced, who happens to be the very man that makes this podcast possible, the co-host of the Jim Cornette Experience, and the host of the 605 Super Podcast, the great Brian Last. I'll be talking about him in a moment. I'll be talking about that. Something briefly that I wanted to mention, a quick plug, not plugging too much today, but the audiobook version of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, my biography of the Sheik, the audio version of that from Tantor Audio is now available for a limited time through January 17th at 50% off. I've been posting the link around. So if you follow me on Twitter, Brian R. Solomon, if you are a member of the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group, you'll see the link I've been posting around that will help you if you are interested in a 50% off purchase of the audiobook of Blood and Fire. So once you hear this, go to those pages, check it out. I'll I'll repost it. And if you're interested, you can get your audiobook copy of Blood and Fire half off. So here we are. This is a very special occasion for me being the 50th episode of a podcast that I wasn't sure I was ever actually even going to do. I toyed with the idea of doing a podcast for years. I didn't really know what it would be, what it would look like. Did I need a co-host? Who, who would the co-host be? I tossed that idea around for a while. Could I possibly do it by myself? What was I going to talk about? Was I going to talk about, you know, reviewing current wrestling? What ha- What's happening in the news, uh, in the topical areas of professional wrestling today? Uh, did I want to go old school? Did I want it to just be about my stories from WWE and the wrestling business? Maybe some interviews I'd done with people in the past. A lot of ideas floating around until it finally coalesced into my mind as to what the show has now become. And I'm thankful to Brian. I'm thankful to Arcadian Vanguard for giving me this great platform to do the show. That's something that I don't take for granted and for making it into what it now is and bringing it to fine listeners like you. So thank you for being a part of this 50th episode, this double length episode. So let's talk about what this is before I lead into the two hours that Brian and I spent talking about pretty much 
everything that came into our minds. So one of the reasons I wanted to do this show, in addition to the fact that I work with Brian, I work for Brian, is the fact that um, I knew that we had a lot in common as fans, as wrestling fans, and in, in many other ways. You know, we both grew up in the New York area. We're similar in age. Brian likes to point out that he is about five years younger than me, but we're similar in age. We, we've had a lot of similar experiences. We know a lot of the same references, as you'll hear in this show coming up. And uh, we're very familiar with kind of like that 80s and 90s New York-based wrestling landscape, the landscape of wrestling media, the landscape of what the indies were like, and things like that. We were both, as you'll hear, at the very first episode of Monday Night Raw at the Manhattan Center. So I knew we'd have a lot to talk about, and this conversation did not disappoint. We really get into it all from Brian's love of Mid-South wrestling. We look behind the scenes of the Jim Cornette experience and some of the decision-making behind that show and, and the drive through of course. We talk about the 605. We talk about those early Raws. We talk about the classic wrestling hotlines of old and anything else you might expect us to talk about from Jack Benny to Crazy Eddie to Georgie Jessel to International World Class Championship Wrestling, you name it, we get to it in this rambling, wonderful, fascinating two-hour conversation. And I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so it is my pleasure this week for this very special 50th episode of Shut Up and Wrestle to bring on as my guest, the man behind the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Lifelong wrestling fan, wrestling historian, the owner of one of the most incredible wrestling memorabilia collections that I have ever personally laid eyes on in my life, and the man who is responsible for having to wrangle Jim Cornette for eight hours every single week, I am talking about the great Brian Last. Brian, thanks for coming on the show. Aloha, Brian. Thanks for inviting me on the show. It's nice to be here, and... uh Thank you for all those nice things. I'm just a, you know, I'm just a guy living in his basement. <laughs> well, that's some basement. Let me just uh, tell you that. But uh, I'm sorry if that introduction wasn't as great as the ones that Jim gives you. No, that's good. His introductions, uh, they're a very unique thing. He's a very unique host. And uh, like I said, it's, it's great to be here. I love your show. And the uh, episode recently with Mike Sempervivi was just one of the most fantastic podcasts I've heard in a long time. Thank you. I, I've been actually getting a lot of good feedback on that. It's almost making me think that I should turn this into a 90-minute show, although I'm afraid to even say that out loud because even just doing the one hour, I don't know how you guys do as much content as you do. Like I, I, I truly marvel at how you do that. You know, you have fun. I mean, you just got to have fun. And, you know, there are weeks where we're right before we're about to record, uh, you know, we'll be saying to each other, there's nothing going on this week. What are we going to talk about? And next thing you know, like three hours later, it's like, well, we found stuff to talk about. How are we going to jam the rest of the stuff we actually were going to talk about in? We'll save some of this for the drive through whatever it is. Just have a good time. Well, let me ask you this about the show, because this is actually this is a good time to pick your brain, because it's the things I get curious about listening to the show or actually to both of the shows, uh, the Jim Cornette experience and the drive through My show is. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That that's one's right. your show. Right? That's right. Yes. <laughs> it's very important to point out that <laughs> distinction as you do each and every week. But uh, no, but what I always think about when I'm listening and even just, you know, because I've been listening for a while is you have this balance that you have to maintain 
And, you know, the balance shifts over the years and over time of doing the show between talking about old school stuff and getting caught up talking about current stuff. You know, like in the past couple of years since AEW has been a thing, I would venture to say there's been way more like modern wrestling content on the show. Is that sort of like a conscious thing or how do you how do you make that balance between talking about the old school stuff that the old school fans love to hear and then talking about the stuff that's on TV every week? Uh, you know, there's no set protocol or anything, but I think, you know, one thing to think about is if you look at the evolution of uh, both shows, but let's just focus on the experience, you know, where it was, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago, I'd have to really go back and look. It was an hour and, uh, it was over pretty quick and a lot of things were jammed in there. And now it's at a minimum three and at times four times as long. So there's still a very similar breakdown. People sometimes ignore that in terms of what content is classic wrestling, what content is modern wrestling and what content sometimes is politics or whatever it may be. It's just the show's longer. It's elongated with AEW. Yeah. It really did prompt a lot of interest we found from the listeners. And that guided a lot of what we did because when you're getting thousands of emails saying, what does Jim think about this? And then when people who work there comment about Jim and then you get all these emails and tweets and whatever else saying, what does Jim think about what this person said about him? You address it. And, you know, the timing of it in terms of when the show really got extremely popular, it actually started slightly before, uh, a few years before AEW, and it really started gaining momentum. And then, you know, we, uh, you know, did a lot of things behind the scenes that people don't know about and really made sure that, you know, we... We're in a really good position and AEW happened and we've been covering it. I mean, it's crazy to think about that because we're just this goofy fucking show with the shock jock and his idiot friend, but we've been covering AEW <laughs> since the very beginning, since even before the press conference, since before all out. I mean, Jim didn't know how I knew and he's never even asked me to be honest, but I made comments. If you go back to the show way before all out that there are really rich people out there looking to do shit right now. I mean, cause I knew what was happening. And it's a fascinating story. And I think if you are a historian, and I think a lot of the people who, um, I guess, I don't know what you would call them, gym detractors or, or whatever it may be. Not people who just like hate him, like, oh, he's the devil, he's the antichrist. He said mean things about my favorite wrestler who can't fight back or whatever the fuck it is. Beyond that, like the people who are like, I love his historical stuff, but, you know, blah, 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 blah. I think that, uh, actually, I don't even know what I think. I had a point and it left my mind, but, uh, you know, from a historical point of view, following it from the beginning and calling a lot of the pitfalls as they happened, looking at it from a different perspective than a lot of other people have. And, you know, people will just jump on, you know, again, Jim insulting an orange Cassidy or whatever it may be, or he hates Riho. Ignor <laughs> ignoring the fact that, uh, it it's, a hyperbolic voice for a lot of wrestling fans. And I love the classic content. And quite frankly, no one has uh, put more money into or more time into promoting and producing classic wrestling content over the last few years that really strive to be accurate and uh, really strive to always have great productions too. You know, but there's an amazing story that, you know, we've been able to watch since the beginning and People have wanted to dismiss a lot of the things we've said, but look at how many of the things we've said have just flat out happened. 
And there's a lot of shit they don't want out there that's happening that we know about. I mean, so I, I didn't answer any of your fucking question. So let me go back. No. And, I, and I apologize for cursing. I didn't even ask if I'm allowed to curse on your show. And I'm just over Listen, here after take, the taking Vandal, you back to Brooklyn. After the Vandal Drummond episode, I've just decided to let everything go. No, I, what, what I've done. You suck to your mother. Now, see, I won't do it. I won't do it. See, see, a couple of times when I've had people you on. You cornhole with your brother. He, he was one. I'm trying to think of the other one. There was somebody who was on recently. Actually, it might be one that I haven't posted yet where there's just so much profanity where I just have to be like, you know, I'm going to just put a warning at the beginning of the show. Instead of like a couple of times I would have someone who would drop a big one and then I just kind of bleep it out if it was one time. But if it's if it's through the show and it's just part of who. You know, part of the conversation, I'm not going to, you know, become like a scold over it, but whatever. And I know that's certainly not something that is an issue on on Jim's shows or your your shows with Jim. No, but, uh, but to go back to your point, just to uh, cap it off. So, yeah, we focus a lot on modern wrestling and there's interesting things happening. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the coverage, if you get past the hyperbolic uh, comments at times of Jim, I think in time when people evaluate the story of AEW, they'll realize you know, we were kind of on the money about a lot of things and, and saying them in advance, but we're also the biggest platform for historical wrestling out there. I mean, if you ask any author of any book, uh, whether it's Jim's two shows or six Oh five, you come on those shows, you're going to sell books and that's not going to happen on other podcasts. So our audience understands, you know, that there's a, a variety show aspect of it at times, just because also there are times where Jim and I just, you know, we'll take a conversation and talk about old TV or something. So you're going to get a mix of things, but you will get that classic wrestling stuff. And I dare say there's not been any other program or series of programs that have turned on more young people to being interested in classic wrestling than gym shows. That's actually what got me into into following your shows, including the 605, just because there wasn't a lot. And I've said this to you even off the air. There wasn't a lot that was being done. First of all, there wasn't a lot being done of quality. There wasn't a lot being done of people who actually knew what the hell they were talking about. And there wasn't a lot that was really kind of serious about it. And, and I have to say, uh, you know, I don't want to I don't want to blow things too much out of proportion, but. But I sometimes wonder if the effect of the shows you're doing, because they are doing quality, you know, historical coverage, haven't partially helped across the board to raise awareness, uh, like you said, among much younger fans on the Internet. And, 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 and I'm serious, even like eventually leading to people at Vice doing shows like Tales from the Territories and things like that, going like, I think there's a market for this because people are talking about it on the Internet. Like, I mean, look, you've been a wrestling fan, uh, you know, probably as long as I have or longer. I mean, like I and I've always been. No, you're older than me. How dare you? Well, I think you started before me. That's what I'm trying to say. But but the thing about it is I, I can never remember a time and I've always been interested in the territorial days of wrestling. It's just been a fascinating subject for me, as I'm sure it is for you. But I can't remember a time more before the past couple of years where it's been such a hot topic online of fans talking about the territories, the territories, the territories. It's all of a sudden become this kind of in vogue topic that more than just a handful of historians are talking about. And I really think that shows like yours have something to do with that. I, I really do. Oh, I absolutely think they do. Listen, was anyone, was there anyone period, let alone anyone under the age of 60 
screaming about Bull Curry or Morris Siegel or any of these people being put in the Hall of Fame. And now you hear a lot of people every single year. Alan Blackstock gets credit for Big Daddy. <laughs> no one will ever take that away from him. But some of these guys got on the ballot because of the 605 and because of the conversations on Jim's shows. So, like I said, we talk modern wrestling, and I think it's hard to just ignore it. Even when the shows were smaller, if something happens, you address it. You got to talk about it. But we, who's done more for classic wrestling? And by the way, there's a lot more we're going to be doing in the new year that uh, I think is really going to excite people. But yeah, I don't know what question I'm answering at this point, but <laughs> you have another one. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> I was just letting you go, you know. But um, it, the gym, like I'm assuming the way that this progressed is that, you, you know, you brought this to him like, hey, you know, maybe we should start talking about what they're doing in AEW and things like that. I'm assuming that because I my the feeling I get is that he was not following any of modern wrestling at all, just seemed to have no interest in it, understandably so. But is that sort of the way it went down? And was he hesitant? Was he like, well, I don't know if I want to go back to watching wrestling every week again. You know what I mean? You know, not really. Uh, sorry to shoot it down that way. I mean, in a sense, maybe, but it really all stemmed from our private conversations just before the show would record or when we would talk during other days. We would find ourselves just laughing, talking about this stuff. For everyone who thinks he's just some angry man, he's not. He also sees the humor in things. There are things and people that make him specifically angry, but usually you could target in on exactly who they are and what they're doing that would do it. Sometimes you can't. And you learn something. But we would typically just end up laughing about this stuff. And, you know, you could focus on AEW, but, you know, when Ronda Rousey debuted, he couldn't wait to talk about that. And, you know, sometimes we'll say, we have to talk about WrestleMania. It's WrestleMania. You know, so it kind of started with that. And, you know, as the audience grew, and again, it, if you go back to Jim's days before me on MLW with Alice Radley, and you go to where it is now, it's like a couple of different universes. I mean, we now have a magnificent audience and it's the biggest audience ever and it's still growing which is crazy and i want to say something about about jim now we could talk about him because he's not here but <laughs> but th this is interesting to me because you've mentioned a couple times you know that people say he's angry or you know he'll say he'll say he'll say hyperbolic things and then you know but but there's always kernels of truth in there and i know you know I have always been a Jim Cornette guy and people will – I will get people saying like, Solomon, you seem so reasonable and rational and, and down to earth and you know how could you – how could you go along with, with, with that Cornette guy and blah, 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 blah. But here's the thing. I, I, I really am in, of the same way of thinking as you are in the sense that if you listen to him and not just these little – you know, sound bites and things that get that get pulled out and, and everybody has a field day and people go nuts and lose their goddamn minds. If you actually listen to the things that he has to say and and it also helps if you've ever spent time and I've said this before in a wrestling locker room. OK, you will understand that in any given wrestling locker room, Jim Cornette would probably be one of the more reasonable and calm human beings in that locker room compared to everybody else in there. And I think sometimes it, it just, there are some people that will just never get it. You know, that this is, this is just part of the business is you will encounter 
people who are colorful, who are outspoken, who are, like you said, hyperbolic, who are given to, you know, kind of <laughs> histrionics. And it doesn't mean that there's still not good people worth listening to, decent people, intelligent people, and very insightful people. And I really think it's a very kind of insulated view when people will just dismiss. And it's not just Jim. There's other people in wrestling. People will just dismiss them outright. And I always say to myself, this is somebody who has never been inside of a wrestling locker room. Yeah, you know, I mean, the interesting thing with Jim is, you know, there are probably as many AEW fans who listen as non-AEW fans. You know, it's almost like that old Howard Stern thing. You know, the people who like him listen this amount of time. The people who don't like him listen because they want to hear what he's going to say that they're going to be offended by. So, you know, we kind of just don't give a shit about anyone out there who has a problem with any of that stuff. Because, you know, a few people on Twitter having a hissy fit doesn't mean shit in the real, in the reality of things, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's really what, the, what that's I'm what trying it to is. say with See, when you know a few, when you once you know a few of the wrestling Twitter... Cretans. Not like every, I'm not saying everyone on wrestling Twitter is like a Cretan, <laughs> but once you've known like a few of them, once you've actually seen where they live, once like that kind of shit, you can't take it too seriously because you realize it's most, most likely, most likely someone who's just lonely and upset and, you know, and, I, and I'm not saying that in a mean or funny way. I, I mean, in reality, it's probably someone who's just lonely and upset and this is their one forum and this is what they're using it for. So like I said, you can't take it too hard. Uh, everyone knows what Jim's show is, and like I said, it's the biggest and the best, and uh, only getting bigger and better. And not only that, but you you also cannot. It's very easy to overestimate the reach that people on Twitter have, or even just the reach of Twitter itself. Like I, I've been making the joke for years that there's nothing that tells you how small, in the grand scheme of things, Twitter actually is than the fact that NXT takeovers would be the number one worldwide trend on the app. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, if that's the number one trend in the world on Twitter, then obviously <laughs> Twitter can't be that huge. You know what I mean? Well, again, the other thing is, it you know, just the overall trending thing, it just means a bunch of people are tweeting at a hashtag. I mean, not, not always, because, right. I mean, they can isolate a name and say, like, you know, uh, Cameron Diaz is trending. And by the way, I doubt she's ever trended because she hasn't really done much in years. But, you know, Cameron Diaz is trending. Not sure why I picked Cameron Diaz of all the people I could have done this example with. B big fan of the mask, yes. I guess. Jack Benny is trending today on Twitter. Right. Like, you don't see that. Right. But if you did, it just meant like 10 people went out there and put like, happy birthday, Jack Benny. <laughs> you know, hashtag right. 39, Jack Benny. Cancel Georgie Jessel. That would be the <laughs> hashtag. That hits. <laughs> You know, someone just put in a mothership today, and uh, it, that's why I, I was thinking of Jack Benny. That The Jack Benny show is still on Antenna TV, and I got to see, I don't know if I have that here on Xfinity, but I used to watch that uh, all the time, and I would watch it with my dad, actually, when I would go visit him in Florida uh, years ago, and Burns and Allen is on right after it. So it's a pretty cool little uh, run of old TV shows if you're into that kind of thing. I got to check that out. Antenna TV is one of those channels where it, it bugs me because I have... I have Frontier, and Frontier does this annoying thing where they have standard definition channels, and then they have high definition channels. Yeah, Xfinity does that crap too, man. So, but but some channels, like let's say HBO, they'll be like a standard definition and a high definition, you get, and you, and you know you can choose either one. I don't know why you would choose the standard, but then channels like Antenna TV, they will only be in the standard definition 
part of the spectrum. They don't have an HD counterpart. So I completely forget they exist because I don't even go to that part of the of the channel guide. Makes you wonder how much you could buy one of those channels for. If they're not in HD or not being broadcast widely nationwide in HD, how much could they be actually be making an ad revenue? But anyway, um, yeah, Antenna TV is great. I used to watch that, like I said, all the time. And then as the Decades channel, sometimes yes. cool stuff on there. You got Dick Cavett. They used to have, uh, I don't know if they still have Laughing, but they aired Laughing from beginning to end on there. It was great. And my favorite, what about, of course, MeTV. I was going to say MeTV. I mean, that was like... When I when I first found that channel, when it started, I was like uh, addicted to it. I, I was wa- watching it constantly. I don't know. That one might be about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. MeTV, I think, might have been the first of those kind of like retro, you know, nostalgia channels. Certainly the biggest. There was a whole big article, I think, in the New York Times this year about Sven Gulli, that he's now the most popular show on the network. He's the only show that gets over a million viewers. And it's crazy to think about the idea, wow, this horror host who's been doing this for years locally is now the biggest star on this national channel. Someone will say, oh, it's only a million people. Hey, still a lot of people. That's a million people at least on one night watching that show. That's more people than usually watch Dynamite or Rampage on a weekly basis. That's right. To see Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein or something like that. So maybe they should get Sven Gulli on Dynamite. It might, might help. Uh, well, they'll probably do an angle with Dan Housen and it would just piss people off. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> I keep wanting to mention this and I'll, I'll mention it because we were talking about the historic stuff and preserving the history and that kind of thing. And you mentioned a few minutes ago that, you're, you know, you're a few years younger than me. So so here's and this is the question that I get asked a lot. So I'll ask it to you is that, you know, people will always say to me, well, how old are you again? You, you know what I mean? Like, how, how do you know about this stuff or why are you interested in it? So. You know, I'm assuming that if you became a fan around the time I did or roughly or whatever, that really, you know, the territories weren't even a thing anymore, I would assume, or just kind of like on their last dying gasps. So if assuming that's true, how did you take an interest in that stuff? Well, that's a pretty fair assumption. I became a fan for real in 89. I became aware of shit in 85 with the release of the action figures and then the cartoon. But 89 is when I became a fan. So I was wrong. Okay. When did you become a fan? I became aware in 79, and I became a fan in 87. Yeah, I don't know what, how in the world you thought you would have, I would have been a fan longer than you. But anyway, back well, to no, this. Because I, because <laughs> I was 12 years old, but I, I was 12 years old when I started really being a fan. There's so you see that as late? Fun. You see that as being a late age to I start? I do. I do because I feel like, especially for that era, for that era when wrestling was really being aimed at little kids and WWF wanted children, and honestly, like most of my friends were watching in '85 when WrestleMania was was starting and all that, and I wasn't. You know, I feel like most kids my age, most men my age, who were, who were wrestling fans, they they started when they were a lot younger, like maybe like 84, 85, you know, around that sweet spot when they, you know, if, if you're my age, you would be like nine, 10. So for me, I feel like 12 was a little bit of a late start. Like my son, God bless him. Who's now 18. My son was sick of it by 12. He was a big fan until he hit 12. And then he was like, dad, I'm not watching this with you anymore. And I was like, you're 12 years old. Like that's the age I was when I started. And now you're done. That's just so sad. It may be more of an indictment on uh, modern wrestling or wrestling when he was 12 than it is on anything else. 
Maybe, maybe. It, it, yeah, it could be because I was showing him too much of the old stuff. Like my my son was like five years old and his his favorite wrestler was Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> and it was 2009. <laughs> well, you see, there you go. But to answer your question, I got into WWF in 89. And then by the summertime, I discovered the NWA on TBS. And then I think... The next thing I would have seen that would have been something different may have been the AWA on Sports Channel briefly. Because that was the first time I ever saw the AWA. It was Bischoff. It was Yukon John Nord and whatever, Flapjack Scott Norton. <laughs> it was Mike George, the timekeeper, where he would predict how long it would take for him to win the match. It was the trooper. Like the worst period of the AWA to everyone was the first period I saw of it. Was this Turkey on a pole era? In a sense, yes, because the Team Challenge shit was happening, but I didn't see that. They were right. still doing shows. They were still airing shows in arenas. Very, very dark arenas. But I remember seeing them just being curious about the outside world outside of WWF and NWA, which I had seen. The idea there are other people out there doing this. For who? Where? How do I see this? And I also discovered... Wrestling magazines, you know, by the summer, I was getting like a whole bunch of magazines. And then by the end of 89, you got a bunch of those decade in review things. And if you're interested in history, that kind of set me off. Who's this person? Who's this person? I remember the montage. I think it must have been Sports Review Wrestling, where it had a picture of like all the wrestlers, not all, but the biggest wrestlers who had passed in the 80s. And it was Bruiser Brody, I think maybe Adonis. And then it was David Von Erich. It was Kevin Von... No, not Kevin. Excuse me. David Von Erich. <laughs> Mike Von Erich. Sorry, Kevin. Uh, Gino Hernandez. And I remember just being intrigued. Because these were not names you heard on TV. I mean, Adonis, maybe. Again, if you were a fan in 88. I had a tape of WrestleMania 3 when I became a fan. My dad had taped it for whatever reason. So I had that. But other than that, I wouldn't have known Adonis. But I didn't know any of those names. And then when you start seeing pictures of other people and other things, and at least me, I'm always, I've always been history-minded. You get curious about things, and you want to learn more about it. And who is that person? Again, why are they there? Who are they? What are they doing? See, my problem was I didn't get cable until 92. So by the time I got cable, like the party was over, you know, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I kept, I, I remember I was a WWF fan, like I said, from 87 and I would start to get an awareness of other companies and territories from wrestling magazines. Like we talked about that, um, 25th anniversary of the wrestler. I talked about that when I was on the 605 with yeah, you that's at that right. time and, and how that was a big eye opener. And uh, the PWI, the Lords of the Ring tape, you know, that was a huge one where it was like everything but the WWF. But I but I didn't get cable. My neighborhood, I lived all the way out in the ass end of Brooklyn in Bensonhurst. And we and there were parts of Brooklyn and Queens that just they just did not get wired cable for you'd, you'd have to get yeah. one of those gigantic dishes, which we you know, we didn't have. And so by the time I got cable, all there was obviously WCW, which is that's when I started watching it. There was uh, the Global Wrestling Federation. I think it was on ESPN. Yeah. Four and there was every day. right. I don't even think ECW hadn't really started yet. And there was the NAWA. I yeah. Remember. Tony Capone, the and Condor. Very, remember the right, Condor? 
the lightning kid the lightning <laughs> that, kid that's what man years ago i taught i bass yeah i can't speak all of a sudden i'm getting excited now i told sean waltman i said i remember seeing you there i was like what the hell is he doing here and he told me right. all about it but that was pretty cool when that started airing on tv that was like because it seemed like you know i think they said on the air they were in like you know white plains or whatever and it seemed local and they had some good wrestlers some name wrestlers Wow, maybe they're going to do something. And then, you know, they don't do anything. They disappear. They get enough steam going. They get on TV, but then they don't even run shows. You, nothing happens. Oh, you know what else? What else there was, too? There was IWCCW, which. Oh, yeah. The, Savol- the Savoldis. And, of course, everybody talks about it. I And I saw it a million times. It Tony was, Atlas versus right, Vic Steamboat. Versus Vic Steamboat, yes. What did you see more? Tony Atlas versus Vic Steamboat or Honky Tonk Man versus Rick Rude? Who's the best intercontinental champion in a debate? Which went oh, nowhere, yeah. or Curly Moe introducing whatever the hell he introduced. And actually, Curly Moe, right? I remember, maybe it was on their show. I remember an interview segment that Bill Apter did. It was like PWI, Bill Apter interviewing Curly Moe. And I think they were both doing like competing Curly Howard impressions. Yeah, Bill's the wrong person to put in that situation because he couldn't contain himself. No, no, he couldn't. But uh, here's the new wrestler, Jerry Lewis the third. Can you imagine Bill Apter trying to talk to that guy? (laughs) Right. I will now be interviewing Jerry Lewis and Muhammad Ali. (laughs) (laughs) That would really be disastrous. But um, the first indie show. The first indie show I ever went to was an IWCCW show. It was um, in the summer of 91. Where was that? Our Lady of Guadalupe? No. Our Lady of Guadalupe is where, by the way, where my grandparents were married. Oh, no but, shit. Wow. Uh, yeah, in that church there. But uh, but I have been to shows at Our Lady of Guadalupe. But no, it was um, Lafayette High School in Brooklyn. And, and Tommy the D? Thing is, uh, no, no. Well, Tommy D, if I remember right, Tommy D was separate from those guys. He was he had his own thing going because I used to go to some of his. Oh, you said IWCCW. Excuse yeah. me. For, forget. I was, was just thinking of the location who would have been running. Not you did say IWCCW. Yeah. So, yeah, this was a Savoldi show. And actually, it was about a year before I got cable. So I hadn't even really seen them, you know, because people forget this was back in the days when. Indie wrestling was being sold. The way you got people to come was, hey, we have these old WWF and NWA guys that you've seen on TV, and now they're going to be here at your gym. So come down and see it. Like, that's how you got people in the building. And, you know, I went because the main event was Tony Atlas versus Greg the Hammer Valentine. And I'm going, wow, I get to see Tony Atlas versus Greg the Hammer Valentine in the auditorium of Lafayette high school in Brooklyn, New York, you know? <laughs> so yeah. And, and my grandfather took me and I remember he went backstage. My grandfather used to be uh, really closely connected in the boxing world in, in New York city. Yeah. I remember you so, told me that a while back. So he, he knew, he just knew everybody that there was, and he somehow got himself into the locker room by pretending to be a member of the state athletic commission. I swear to God, he 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 got back there and he just started getting autographs from everybody for me. And he didn't even know who any of these guys were. He just came out of the locker room and he's like, the show hadn't even started yet. And he's like, hey, Brian, look, look, I got an autograph for the Brooklyn Brawler for you. And I got an autograph of Tony Atlas and he just had all these eight by tens. He just, and this was my first experience at, at an indie wrestling show. And I remember seeing Tommy dreamer there. Nobody knew who he was. The Tasmaniac was there. 
I'm trying to think of who else. But I mean, those were some of like the earliest shows that I went to. What year was it? 91. And the crazy thing is Duke the Pitbull Snyder. Uh, yes, I think so. <laughs> because here's the thing. I have never been able to find a record of this show anywhere. And I've been, I've looked for years to find a record of this show. It's like, it's just erased from history. I mean, uh, it, I, I am, no I way. know that it happened. No way. You know what? If it was in Brooklyn, there were enough small time newsletters still that someone would have gone and sent the results to someone. It may not have been well, in the observer. But if it was in Brooklyn, I'm sorry, there were enough people that if I got to think someone would have been there that would have sent the results somewhere. Well, maybe if somebody hears this and can like back it up, because all I have to go by are my memories. I remember Surfer Ray Odyssey was on the show. Um, There was this guy named uh, Flex Lavender. Yeah, I remember him. He was was a Rick Rude knockoff, basically. No offense to Flex Lavender. But um, yeah, and the see, here's the thing that I remember the most about the show, because I was still I was in high school. I wasn't like under any illusions about what wrestling was, but I had never had it explained to me. I just had my own assumptions of what it was. And I'm watching the match and they had it was one of those where they had the ring on the stage. You know what I mean? It wasn't even like in the center of the room. It was like up on the stage where they would do like high school recitals and things. And so they had these chairs set up. Uh, on the stage and those were for the vips and family members so i'm sitting in the seats in the auditorium and this woman is sitting front row who i think i'm assuming was tony atlas's wife and they're having this match tony atlas greg valentine and tony atlas is playing like his heel remember he was like the heel champion for them and he's really hamming it up and he's really he was good as a heel by the way Oh, no, I'm not saying he wasn't. Hey, give me heel Tony Atlas versus Zeus against Hogan in 89. I would have taken it. He could have been Zeus, for God's sake. I never even thought of that. But but he's there doing, you know, his whole routine. And I'm buying it. I'm 16 years old. I'm like, I hate this guy. And his wife or whoever is just dying laughing in the front row, like right by the ring, just uncontrollably laughing. And you can understand why, because she knows him. She, you know, she knows he's not really like this and she's finding it hilarious. And I remember just being really annoyed. Like there was something I I didn't even know how to articulate it. I was just like in my head uh, thinking, you know, if you're that smartened up and I wouldn't have thought in those terms, but like, don't, don't, don't put it out in front of everybody like that. You know, we're trying to like suspend our disbelief and you're just laughing your ass off at your husband, you know, being a clown. And it was one of the first times that I got like sort of a <laughs> peek behind the, you know, the curtain of wrestling in a way, you know, I almost had the exact opposite happen to me. You said your husband being a clown. So listen to this. It was 95. There was some indie show and Nassau community college on Long Island. I went, uh, I got dropped off there because my friend Eric Benben came in from Brooklyn with his brother and some friends. And I was going to meet them there, so I had someone to sit with and hang out with. And we're there, and we're all teenagers. I'm 15. Eric was a little bit older than me. And we're reading the sheets, so we're smart, and we're stupid because we're young, and you want to you know, have fun with your other smart friends in the crowd. And they had a battle royal, and Doink the Clown that night was the Rockin' Rebel. And we spotted it. And we started laughing about it loudly. Now, we're not in the front row. We're not 
golden ticket ringside. We're in the bleachers of Nassau Community College. <laughs> we're all the way in the back. And we're laughing and we're, you know, that's the Rockin' Rebel. And we're making little inside ECW jokes or whatever. You know, again, we're young and stupid. Well, his wife was like a few feet in front of us and we didn't know it. <laughs> and she turns around and starts fucking yelling at us and cursing at us and then it became, my husband's going to kick your ass. <laughs> and I'm going to tell him and this and that. We're like, what is he going to do? You know, we're kids and we're here. And he's going to beat us up in front of everyone. Everyone heard you. I was at a show once where Doink was Gino Caruso. Oh, there have been so many. I've been at shows where Doink was Gino Caruso. I was friends with Dennis Carluzzo. And right. the, the the way the story ends, though, he ended up. Like he in his doink makeup came to the side, called us over, <laughs> and we went over and we talked to him. And he was he was kind of cool. He was like, "Look, guys, just you know, please, you know, she's gonna flip out if you do anything, and you know, it doesn't help me." And please, well, okay. And uh, I think this the ending of the story was years later he murdered her and killed himself. So, doink. Wow. And I've never uh, and I've always I felt bad about telling my Crash Holly story on this show. But oh, my God, this might be the time to do it. I feel like, man, this is such a good story that I, I should save it for. Well, this is a special occasion, God damn it. But I have an insane story about Crash Holly. It doesn't have to do with you, but I'll tell it. Oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm waiting. I, I don't know if I have to. uh Say yes, I, I'm willing to hear it. But well, yes. no, you are the guest. I don't want to just totally hijack the show with, with this hey, story. Who, who am I to turn down a Crash Holly story? Well, here's the deal. Okay, so I feel I, – as I get older, I feel worse telling this story, but I'll tell it anyway. So Crash Holly, Mike Lockwood, he was one of the only people when I worked at WWE who really gave me a hard time and to the point of really making me feel unsafe. And oh, I could see the headlines now on some of these clickbait websites. But anyway, you know, and he did. He 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 had a chip on his shoulder. You know, he was a he was a smaller guy, and he had that kind of short guy, you know, chip on the shoulder. He was he was self conscious about it, and I didn't know this. And so we did an article on on the website about the the greatest um, hardcore champions of all time, or something like that. And I ranked. You know, Mick Foley, Mankind as number one, which is like the, the easiest, you know, safest choice, you know, and Crash Holly, of course, had had that great run with the hard. Well, I don't know if you'd call any great run with the hardcore title a great run. A good, no, you know, for that era, I think he actually had a really good run. So, you know, he had a bone to pick with me. And the other thing was I described him in the in the article as diminutive. <laughs> And I'm thinking um, he took it the wrong way. I was trying to put him over as, well, he's a smaller guy, but, you know, don't let that fool you like that kind of thing. You know, he's not one of the biggest wrestlers out there, you know, but he can get the job done, whatever, trying to put him over. So I go to this show. I go backstage. I think it was at the garden. His entire was, gimmick, you mean? Yes. Right. That was his whole gimmick. Right. I was I was playing into the gimmick of this scrappy little guy. Right. Who's going to kick your ass. And I'm at the garden. And it's a big night for me because I'm doing this. I'm working on my first book, which was WWE Legends. And I'm so I'm trying to get interviews with some of like the legends that were still around back then. Arnold Skolan was there and I was trying to like sort of get him to sit down and talk and people like that. And they say to me, um, somebody comes up to me and says, you know, um, Crash Holly wants to talk to you. 
And I said, all right, well, he's not, he's not happy or something. And I'm like, oh my God, what is this guy going to say to me? So he, he, he waits until I'm in, I'm in front of as many people as possible. And I was in the, one of those backstage rooms, like it might've been like the payoff room, like some kind of really, or the kayfabe room, one of these really closed off areas and Skoland is there and all these other people. And in front of all of them, he starts running me down. He gets in my face. You know, he kind of like gets on his tippy toes and he gets in my face and he's like, oh, you son of a bitch. What do you think? I'm? You called me diminutive. You think I'm uh, small or what? And you and you rank Mick Foley as the number one hardcore champion, that fat so-and-so son of a bitch, fat fuck and all this stuff. Jesus. Yeah. You should have called him deceptively tall. He's going and, 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 I'm, and I'm saying to him exactly I'm saying to him, not as short as you'd think, Crash Holly, but I'm saying to him exactly what you just said, which is, hey, you know, Mike, I'm just like playing into your whole persona like that's I'm not trying to run you down. He's like, you think I'm small? And he pull, he he pulled me out, like not physically, but he like escorted me out onto the arena floor and he and he's pointing to the ring and they're like working out in the ring. And he's like, how about I take you in that ring and I'll show you how small I am and I'll stretch you and I'll do this to you and I'll do that to you. How about and I take I'm- you to Bensonhurst and show you who I know? Get the fuck out but of here. I, but I'm so shaken up. I, I, you got to understand, I, I don't want to lose my job. I've never had any wrestler get in my face like that. You know, I just, and and it would, and it started happening at more than one show. It, it was becoming a problem. I took my mother and my sister to a show at the, the next garden show. And my sister wanted to meet Brian Kendrick. Okay. Cause she thought he was cute. Brian Kendrick. What I didn't realize, Brian Kendrick and Crash Holly were, were travel companions. And so we're leaving the, the parking lot at the garden and I pass by. <laughs> makes Brian sense. Kend- Ma- makes sense. They could rent a smaller car. <laughs> right. right. But I pass by their car. At, well, I didn't know. I pass by Brian Kendrick's car. I see Brian Kendrick getting into the car and I get out and I'm like, oh, Chris, my sister, Christine, I'm like, come out of the car. I'll introduce you because me and Brian, you know, we had a good relationship and we always, you know, were, were on good terms. And I, I'm starting to walk over to the car and from out of the passenger side comes Crash Holly. My mother's in the car. OK, my sister is right next to me. And I'm just like, you know what? This isn't a good time, Christine. I'll introduce you some other time. Let's get let's get back in the car because I'm I'm now expecting Crash Holly to cut a promo on me literally in front of my mother. And I didn't want that to happen. So this kept happening and I didn't know what to do. So I sat down with with the great Keith Elliott Greenberg, veteran wrestling writer at one of these shows when my colleague and I said to him, like, what do I do? I, I don't want to be a snitch. I don't want to tell on the guy. I feel like I, I don't want to be that guy that, you know, that's going to hurt me more if I sell it like that and get him in trouble. I, I, I don't I don't know what to say. So Keith took it all in. Keith then took it upon himself. Keith, if you're listening, I think I've told you this part of the story. To plant Keith, steroids on Chris no, Holly. No, 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 no. Oh, no? No, oh. no, no, that was already, no, he was already doing plenty of that himself. No, Keith did what I didn't have the nerve to do, which is that he talked to our boss. He, he went to the editor, Barry Werner, and he and he said, you know, there's this thing going on on the road I don't think you're aware of between Brian and Crash Holly. It's a very unhealthy situation. Now, Barry then went to Shane McMahon, who was the head of the department, and I'm sitting at my desk one day and I'm working. Shane McMahon comes over to my desk 
and he taps. It, it was, this was like something out of Goodfellas. I'm trying to set the scene here. He taps on the desk and he looks at me and he goes, hey, Bri, you know that uh, that whole situation with Crash Holly? Because I already knew that he knew because Barry had told me, my boss had told me. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. The problem with Crash Holly, I know. And he goes, yeah, you don't have to worry about that anymore. And he walks away. And I go, holy shit. I go online to, you know, the wrestling dirt sites. Crash Holly fired from WWE. Oh, shit. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Now. Now, I have not heard this story before. No. (laughs) Now, now, in fairness, what I wound up, I'm not claiming full responsibility. What I wound up discovering was I was only one person he was doing this to. It was a pattern of behavior. And I think that Brian Gewertz was another person. So that it was an accumulated thing. And when this made its way to Shane, I think it was almost like a last straw and Crash Holly was fired. And then unfortunately, and that's what made me think of it when you were telling me about Rock and Rebel. Yeah, because we're telling funny jokes here on the show. That's right. <laughs> right. A few weeks ago, a few weeks later, a few weeks later, he commits suicide. And everyone, everyone in the office is is just breaking my balls endlessly about this blaming me and you know but but in that in that sick humor way that happens in the world of wrestling like 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 blaming me for crash holly dying and then the the worst part and then i'll actually let you speak brian i promise but the worst part then of the rib that was pulled on me was now we do this story remembering crash holly and getting the WWF superstars to recount their memories of Crash Holly. Who do they send? Oh no! To the, to the next <laughs> Madison Square Garden show. Me. They send me to get everybody's memories and recollections about Crash Holly. So this is the business that we're in. So I'm sorry. I know that was a crazy long story. But that's one that I have never told on here, and now now I can't wait to see you know, kind of the the, the headlines of former wrestling writer takes credit for the death of Crash Holly. We'll see. Well, I forgive you. Thank and, you. You know, you know, look, listen. That's why you can't harass people. Not I don't even know if harassment's the right word, but you can't be intimidating someone like you who's not doing anything wrong. I mean, again, I'm all about if someone fucks with you, fuck with them back, fuck with them a lot harder. But if it's just well, some, even, what, go ahead. No, I was going to say even Brian Kendrick was, you know, because he was he was actually a, a friend of mine at the time. He would come when he knew this was going on. He would be there backstage, like trying to apologize. You know, it crashes a hothead. I'm sorry. You know, he shouldn't be saying those things to you. And, you know, don't don't take it the wrong way. He's not really going to, like, do anything and blah, blah, blah. But for a young guy, you know, new to the business and everything, I didn't know which way it was going to go. It was pretty scary. Actually. You know, and the other thing is you look back and again, it's in retrospect. So who knows what? But it makes you wonder if that had happened now, would he have been fired? Would he have been sent home for a month to cool out? Would he have been sent to rehab if there was anything substance-wise? Because I don't know if that was at the height of WWE testing or caring at that point. You know, it makes you wonder how different the end result would have been. Because again, it wasn't just you. Apparently it was other people also having this issue. This issue. These issues with Crash Holly. Makes you wonder if it had happened today, if WWE's reaction, if management's reaction would have been different than... Again, we don't know what Shane did. We, I mean, I don't know if Shane had the power, the position to fire anyone. He had the power to go to his dad. Right. I think realistically what probably happened is 
he probably talked to maybe Stephanie or his dad, and they were probably like, you know what? That also happened to so-and-so, or that's been happening, or Gewirtz told us that happened, and, you know, we're going to do something about it. I don't believe, you know, Shane himself would not have had the power or even, you know, to fire Crash Holly, but, but I'm sure that his bringing that up at least played a part in what happened. All right, so what do you want to talk about next? Any other wrestlers so you the, killed? There you see. I'm I, I sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> now you're joining. The, you're joining the crew of people who break my chops about killing Crash Holly. Wow. Thank you. I did not kill Crash Holly for the record. Well, there's the name of this God. episode. I did so not really- kill Crash. I'm sure that'll be the headline that people run with. Not, yes. I killed Crash Holly. I did not kill Crash Holly. They'll take out the did not. It'll be like, I, in parentheses, killed Crash Holly. What a ghoulish turn this show has taken. Let me see. So, <laughs> Any lighthearted topics? Yes. <laughs> Let me completely shift gears here for a second because yeah. this, is, this is another thing I wanted to talk to you about with regards to the old school stuff uh, that I'm interested in because I um, I know that you have a special place in your heart for Mid-South, Mid-South you know, Championship Wrestling. And so I, I've been curious to know how that got started. How did you get interested in Mid-South? How did that become, you know, because again, it was long gone by the time you got into wrestling. Or not long gone, but I mean, not that far in the past. How did you get interested in that stuff? Well, by the beginning of 93, I had started getting different tapes from different places. Uh, LNS Comics on Long Island had a a lot of stuff, not always the best quality, and it may have taken them a very long time if they actually did give you what you ordered, but they had a lot of stuff, and I believe it was through them that I was able to see originally the best of Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express. It was a three VHS set that he had released in conjunction with, it's funny how things turned out, in conjunction with John Arezzi and Vince Russo. He had released it through their show, because this is during a period of time uh, I think it would have been right before Smoky Mountain Wrestling. So once I saw, I mean, it would have been uh, tape one because it started in Memphis and it started with all the early stuff, but it had Mid-South stuff. And, you know, in terms of substance, it stood out from what was on TV in 92 and 93. And in terms of look, it seemed more serious in tone than a lot of the other things from. 84. Or maybe that's not the right way to put it, but it stood out. The look, there was something striking about it to me, even though it was a very simplistic production. And I loved the angles. And I thought, you know, I didn't think about it in this context at the time, but the commentary was so effective. And I would see wrestlers, it was always cool. I mean, tell me what you think when you would see wrestlers that you knew before you had ever gotten to see them. When in 92, IWCCW, for no good reason, for two weeks, aired back-to-back episodes of the UWF from 87. And in New York, if you were watching, if you were a kid watching, you got to see Jim Duggan in his prime, towards the end of his prime, but before WWF, Ted DiBiase, the Freebirds, Sting, Rick Steiner, Eddie Gilbert. It was amazing. Savannah Jack. It's like, whatever happened to this guy? Superkick with both legs. Right, yeah. I mean, for me, it was... A lot of those those kind of compilation videotapes that were coming out that that, uh, you know, 
Andre the Giant, the missing matches, those kind of things. You know the ones I'm talking about? Randy Savage, the missing yeah, matches. Yeah, the Andre the Giant one had him and JYD and Dusty against the Ernie Ladd and the Samoans. Yes, and you get to actually hear, you know, another one bites the dust instead of what they use when they show it on WWE Network, which is unfortunate. But it's still nice to be able to see all that stuff. But that was the beginning of of my awareness. To To be honest, I didn't even know what it was at the time because they didn't really – tell you where it came from you know it was just these were tapes that were marketed as hey here's a famous wrestler from the wwf you want to see some matches from before they came to the wwf so i didn't even know it was called mid-south really or what it was and that only came from later when i started really you know learning more about wrestling history and to tell you the truth uh i don't think i was able to the the most kind of back-to-back consecutive binge watching of Mid-South episodes only happened for me when when they got when WWE got the rights to the footage because then they put out their DVD collection and I remember I was even working there at the time so I was able to kind of like access a lot of the old footage and I was just you know I had heard so much about it but I'd only seen little bits here and there but but now you know because so much of it has become so widely available I was able to see it and, you know, it really does stand out. It didn't – it wasn't around for long, especially if you just isolate the Bill Watts era, you know, separate from what came before him. But, I mean, for the short time that it was around, there's a reason why it's still remembered by so many people as, you know, one of the best territories there ever was. The best one-hour wrestling show that ever existed. And that was – Bill yeah. Watts is another reason why I was interested in Mid-South because he had been in WCW in 92 and it wasn't exactly the greatest period of time. And I didn't know too much about him before then. Because, again, I was 12, still learning about wrestling history. I didn't know anything about Bill Watts. They never mentioned him on WWF TV. They never mentioned him on NWA TV and Jim Ross on commentary. All of a sudden, he was there. So Mid-South – I got to see what he did. And then in 95, Bob Barnett had purchased the tape collection of Steve Minari, who was an early tape collector in St. Louis, who was friends with Bruiser Brody, and he had an amazing collection of stuff. And probably in, in its time, like while Brody was alive and then right after he passed, probably the best Bruiser Brody collection in the world. And Bob had bought his collection and was going through it and making compilation tapes and once he was done with that i think he made like whatever like eight or ten mid-south compilations he had i I still have them all i wish i I gotta count them but dozens and dozens of these steve minari mid-south tapes which were six hour mostly taped directly off tv so first generation with detailed lists also he was getting from the office somehow House show matches. So a lot of the house show matches that now were kind of out there, and they came out when the family released some of the stuff as the Universal Wrestling Archive, and they've been on YouTube and stuff, and some tape traders had them. I had the master tape, the master VHS copy of it at least, that caused all the other tape traders to get it. So it was just amazing, like 60 tapes set, and I had saved up enough money by that point because I was always pretty industrious. I gave my dad the money. My dad wrote a check, (laughs) sent the check to Bob Barnett, and I got it. And it was right around the time I went on spring break for high school. Not like, you know, hey, let's go to Daytona and get fucked up. It was high school spring break. I went down to my uh, grandmother's house in Florida, 
And I brought those tapes with me. And I sat there when I wasn't in the pool, when I wasn't outside, or when I wasn't doing something. And I went through those tapes and I cataloged everything by hand beyond Steve Minari's notes. I took even more detailed notes of it. And I loved it. And I got to watch, you know, pretty much the entire run of Mid South from beginning to end with all the original commercials, all the local spots. And I still have all those tapes today. I also think that, um, and also from working with him at WWE, that somebody who deserves a lot of credit for keeping the name of Mid-South alive and, and Bill Watts' contributions with it alive is, is Jim Ross, because he, you know, he would always be, especially behind the scenes, kind of raving about the company and putting it over as being an innovator in kind of like weekly episodic wrestling storytelling. And even I remember he wrote a column for us in raw magazine and he actually did write the column himself. <clears throat> he wrote it by hand on paper and he would, he would always put over Bill Watts and mid South. And, and I'm sure that being the head of talent relations, that he probably was constantly dropping those names to a lot of the young talent he was working with also. And so I think that, I think that he's also been very much uh, um, a reason why it's Mid-South is so well-remembered today. Well, again, I think it's just, it's the best show. It's the one that if you go back and read any contemporary smart coverage, everyone raved about at the time. After the fact, in tape trading, every tape catalog that had Mid-South, everyone raved about it. It still stands out. So I actually don't know about that, not to take away anything from what Jim Ross did, but I actually think WWE hasn't done too much to other than putting it up on the network, they really haven't done too much to point out and put out a DVD that was, you know, they put like a 1989 WWF picture of Jake Roberts on the cover. Like just stupid things like that that piss me off. Yeah, no, the company, you're right, as a whole, hasn't really done a huge job in championing Mid-South Wrestling for sure. But I just think of JR as somebody who's kind of like, like a vocal Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a vocal kind of champion. Champion, uh, yeah. Yeah, of Mid-South within the wrestling industry. He kind of, he keeps the legacy alive. You know, he comes from there. He got his start there in that in that part of the country and working in wrestling. And, you know, he's always kind of putting it over. And I think it's led a lot of people to want to go, hey, I want to find out more about this this thing that JR is constantly saying was like the greatest wrestling that was ever produced. You know, because I mean, I remember... You know, almost every conversation that I had with him, it would come up, you know, so obviously it was something that was really important to him. And by the way, it holds up. It's still the it best. Does. It's still the best fucking show. Bill Watts is still probably the greatest commentator ever in terms of effectiveness. Jim Ross, and that's early Jim Ross, but by the end of it, he got really good. That's where he learned under. They had great commentary. The action was really, really good. It was just the best show. Promos were good. Nothing was insulting. Even when something was silly, it wasn't presented like, and now it's the comedy portion of the show. Let's go to this and we'll be back with the blood in a few minutes. It was, yeah. well, look at what this guy's doing. I can't believe this. Or, well, you saw it there. That's what happened. Like, it wasn't playing along with the stupidity. It was pointing out that we're back to reality now. Right. And and I think that's one of the things that really made it work, you know, and and in terms of a lot of old school wrestling, like I've talked about this before, but I think one of the things 
that made it work because sometimes people will and you probably deal with this too anytime you're a fan of old school wrestling and you even dare to attempt to criticize anything with modern wrestling and i still love a lot of what's of modern wrestling but anytime you attempt to criticize it they'll always say well you know they were doing dumb stuff back then too like they were doing silly stuff then and you know there was always crazy silly goofy stuff in wrestling but see and and that's true to an extent but the difference I think what made the difference and Mid-South is a great example is there was always this attitude that, yes, these wrestlers are out of their minds. Like these are weird, bizarre, strange characters. Some of them are just goofy and silly and some of them are serious. Some of them are lunatics. But the framework is dead serious, like the, the referees, the announcers, most importantly, the authority figures. These are all people that you could imagine being part of a legitimate actual sports presentation. And you almost got the sense like we're the normal people. We're not because the announcers weren't even you wouldn't even call them babyface announcers. They were just announcers. You know, they were calling the action like any normal human being would react to things. And it's this attitude of we are the normal people. Our job here is to try to rein in these lunatics that are a part of this wrestling organization, you know, whereas what happened in later years, and I guess maybe it starts with, you know, attitude era late night, or maybe even way before that is once the goofiness and the idea of playing characters stretches over into all those other categories where the referees are gimmicks, the announcers are gimmicks and, and worst of all, the authority figures are gimmicks and characters. And once you get to that point, I think that's where it really degrades and it breaks down. And that's the difference between the old school and the modern to me. Yeah. And you see, you know, I think that's where part of the disconnect is. I don't want to see personally a referee and wrestlers or whoever break out into a dance routine. And I'm not like talking about like the choreographed moves that some of the guys do. I'm actually talking about a literal dance routine. Like, I don't want to see that. I've seen that. I've seen, that's why I'm using this specific example. I've seen that. Wow, where I, have I, you seen that? I've <laughs> seen videos of it. I've seen people oh, fucking the drive-through email, the things people send us, the things that happen on the indies. And what scares you is we're in an era now where things happen on the indies, and next thing you know, they happen on AEW TV. And sometimes it's the same fucking people, too. Like the pizza guy, you mean? <laughs> like the pizza guy is a great example. There's a great example of something. It's like, I don't want to see that in wrestling. I don't want to see that anywhere. You know, I don't want to go to a baseball game and see the center fielder start dancing or doing something stupid. And I'm not as far as like outlaw everything that I don't like. No, no. But I do think there should be a separation of the two things because I think for wrestling to truly succeed, you can't assume the entire audience has a smart fan sensibility or watches something and takes it in the same way a lifelong hardcore wrestling fan who trades tapes or, or trades tapes. That's a long ago term illegally streamed stuff for years and now just gets it, whatever. Like that's a different mindset from the person who I want to go see some, someone get their ass kicked or something. And again, you can watch that show. You can watch dynamite using it as, a, as an example. And maybe there's a wrestler you want to go see that. It shouldn't be like, okay, this is the kick-ass match, and now here's the rest of the show, and everything's going to be, not everything, but there's going to be things that just insult you, that are going to treat you like you're a moron child, 
You're supposed to laugh at things that aren't funny because they're supposed to be funny and they're happening in wrestling. I'm all for that all existing, but just keep it on one show. Just do one promotion. We're ha-ha wrestling. We're a bunch of idiots. This is the kind of entertainment we like, and let's see how good it does. I think that, you know, the thing that people constantly always look away from, they'll say, oh, the wrestling audience, you know, they're spending more money than ever before. Yes, but there's less people. Oh, well, also there's cord cutting. Yes, but there's also less people. <laughs> like, you give me all these excuses. There's less people. There's less people discovering and getting into it. And I think part of the problem is there's a very disconnected nature to a lot of these wrestling shows. And there's very little done that promotes you wanting to stay into it and keep going. So to tie this back to classic wrestling, if I watch an old one-hour Mid-South, if I watch an old one-hour championship wrestling, WWF, even like up to the mid-80s before it went to superstars, you're watching a show where they're not going to they're not going to drive you off by doing something that common sense would tell you doesn't belong there in the first place. Don't you think, though, that um, the kind of the rise of mixed martial arts and UFC really hurt wrestling in that way? Because I sometimes feel like, you know, uh, what we've got left are the fans that seem to just not give a shit about any of that and just love the goofiest stuff possible. And I wonder if it's because the people that were into seeing like tough guys fight each other in a believable way. Now they're like, Hey, why am I going to watch wrestling when I could watch these guys really doing it over here? Like I've often thought that that pulled away a lot of the more kind of like, you know, serious minded wrestling fans who, who wanted to see that kind of stuff. Yes and no. I mean, I do think that it's easier for a young person to become interested in mixed martial arts than it is WWE or AEW even. But like I, yeah, go on. You know, but uh, you know, I've always I I've talked to Jim about this on the air. You know, I've heard the argument in the past, like um, you know, certain things that were done in wrestling or certain moves that were done could never be done again because fans can never take them seriously because of MMA because of UFC. But that's assuming that audience is all a UFC audience. And that's assuming that the idea of suspending disbelief doesn't exist. I contend the right wrestler used the right way. And I know that's a ridiculous two things to put together there. The right wrestler used the right way could get the claw hold over today. Despite the fact that everyone knows, yeah, if a big person squeezes your head, it's going to hurt. But you're not going to see this in the fucking UFC. But it still works. The figure four is something that we've all tried on someone and really hurts. Yes, it does. However, you're never going to see it in the UFC. You can't even see someone set up for it, really. And maybe you get a spinning toehold. So I think, you know, there, there's something there. And again, the rise of UFC, because Vince McMahon okayed the ultimate fighter being aired after Raw, also coincided with WWE not being as interesting as, as it had been previously. So, I mean, there's that too, because at that point in time, TNA was still trying to get their footing. They were still trying to get going on cable too. And WWE was the only game in town. And if they're less interesting and they drove away their competition and UFC all of a sudden is a thing and they're doing pro wrestling TV in a sense better than pro wrestling, it was a perfect storm. Now, are we still in the same state we are today in 2023, going into 2023, that we were in 
you know, whatever it was, 2006, 2007, in that range? No, I think wrestling can create young fans and can create new fans, not necessarily young, maybe even some 12-year-olds. Wrestling can still do that, but sometimes wrestling just needs to get out of its own way. And another thing that I noticed in terms of that kind of thing of, you know, when people will compare and say, well, it was always like this and you're just complaining and, you know, you know, wrestling was never what you think it was or whatever. Nothing kind of dispels those criticisms and theories as much as actually going back and watching it, especially when it becomes more available. Like I was watching um, these new episodes that they just dropped on Peacock from WWF Championship uh, Wrestling from 1980, which uh, covers the whole kind of Bruno Sammartino, Larry Zbysko angle. The best. Yeah, which I I call the greatest heel turn of all time for a bunch of reasons. The most underrated heel of the 80s because his run in the Northeast ended quickly and nothing else really compared to that. But for several months there, Larry Zbysko was incredible. And the thing that – but the thing that makes it stand out, which is, again, not how it would be done today. And I don't – you know, I'm not here advocating for everything to go back to the way it was because I don't think this would work necessarily with the way that wrestling television is set up today. But one thing that definitely changed maybe – well, it started really becoming this way, I would say, in the Russo era. But the difference is when you watch those old episodes that I'm talking about, you'll notice that – the only thing that is happening on those shows that is in any resemblance of a storyline, let's say, is Larry Zbysko and Bruno Sammartino. Everything else on the show are just wrestling matches. Now, you're invested in the matches because you've got the heels, you've got the faces, you've got you know people that are that – are being built up like the Samoans are being built up as a serious threat to the tag team title. There's things happening. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that to say, well, the rest of the show is boring. It's not. But the one clear story arc that's going on is Bruno and Larry. And it has the effect of concentrating you on that one thing. And especially if it's just an hour show, 45 minutes without commercials, Whereas now, you know, it makes it stand out more is what I'm trying to say. Whereas now there's this idea, and I really do think it started with Russo to this degree, and I've seen his notes, so I can can say this with confidence, where this idea of every single wrestler needs to have an angle and a storyline. Every single person on the roster needs to have this clearly defined ongoing storyline. And people are going to hear this, what I'm saying, and go, you know, that they prefer it the way it is now. They like for every wrestler to have a storyline. And I don't think there's any way really to go back on this because, you know, that's what gets the ratings such as they are on, on modern wrestling shows is, you know, these segments and everything's about ratings and you got to keep people watching. And if you just have wrestling matches, people aren't going to, you know, stay tuned or whatever rationales they use, but that's such a shift in modern wrestling where this sense that everyone always needs an angle at all times. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And let's look at Bruno and Zabisco. If you took that, which is an all-time feud, which set, I don't know, I shouldn't say it set box office records, but it did major box office, including Shea Stadium. And that was the match that drew at Shea Stadium. If you took that feud and you put it in AEW today, week one would probably be the first two weeks of what happened on TV and WWF. Week two, they'd probably be off TV. 
And then week three, there'd be a segment in the middle of the show. It wouldn't get the same focus. It wouldn't mean as much. And meanwhile, like you said, all around that, everyone from other main eventers, from tag teams, to people who just don't need to be on TV other than wrestling until people care, are going to be having angles or promos or video packages or whatever it may be. If it was WWF or WWE, excuse me, today, week one would happen, then week two, someone would get hit by a car or there'd be some kind of backstage thing where they're arrested and taken away and the rest of the two hours and 45 minutes would be just filled with nonstop garbage and entrances and then commercials and more commercials. You know, there's something to be said for a simplistic wrestling feud and a simplistic wrestling format. It's about the people. And, you know, I think that's one of the things when you try to compare classic wrestling, at least in the TV era, classic angles and wrestlers and things that worked, how they would work today. Nothing works exact because it's a different time. These are modern times. You'd have to change things for it. But it's more about how it would play out on TV. And I don't, it's very hard to see any classic feuds or angles that would have been done better today based on the track record of the two major wrestling shows. And it's tough because, like I said before, I'm I'm not say, sitting here going, well, we just have to go back to the past because I don't think this is just a wrestling problem. I, I think it, it's an entire cultural shift in terms of entertainment and pop culture. Like, you know, look, I grew up in the in the 80s and 90s, and you, you can definitely see a shift that happened in entertainment where everything became much more fast paced much less patience involved in telling stories and building things, constant bells and whistles to, to, uh, to keep people's attention and everything has to be, you know, super intense at all times. You know, like you'll, I I watch, I I laugh at this and I shouldn't laugh because it's depressing, but I watch coverage of, you know, the election on, on CNN or a news channel or whatever. And they've got music playing like it's game seven of of the NBA (laughs) championship. It's, it's pathetic. It's like, this is, this is serious stuff. This is not a game, but, but this is, where the culture is. And it's been this, you know, I I really started noticing it towards the end of the nineties going into the two thousands, this like need to make everything so intense all the time, I guess, to keep people watching. And that's definitely, but it's an assumption, but it's an assumption that will keep people watching because it's not effective. Michael Cole yelling at the audience, I don't think is effective. And I'm not a fan of his, but even if I was, I don't think having your lead commentator constantly yell, their hands are constantly going. That's not, that's not fucking wrestling. That's crazy Eddie. And you know, if you want to get me into your fucking discount consumer electronics store, that's one thing. But if you want me to keep coming back and watching every day or watching every week, whatever it may be, it can't be like that. I love baseball. I watch you know, well over 120-something Met games a year at least. Some years I've watched every single Met game. But, you know, sometimes things get in the way. I watch a lot of baseball, and that's just the Mets. I like the idea that I get to hear my regular commentators, and I don't get sick of them. 162 fucking games. I don't get sick of them. They yell when stuff happens that's worth yelling about. And that's why you run in from the other room. You walked out, you went to the bathroom, you went to the kitchen. 
Oh shit, he's yelling. Let me go see what's happening. But if they're constantly yelling, after the first few times you come in to see what's happening on wrestling and it's just nothing, it's just the usual stuff, eventually you tune out the announcers. The most effective person on a wrestling program is supposed to be the announcer, the commentator. Because whatever's happening out there, they have to put it into words and they're as responsible as anyone for making you come back. And I think that's part of the problem. The assumption that everyone has to scream and everything has to be exciting. I mean, look at the Major League Baseball postseason pregame shows on Fox. I often watch those and go, who's the fucking audience for this? Who do they think the audience for this is? Because I'm a baseball fan and I want to hear some baseball talk. This is the World Series. I don't need to see David Ortiz, you know, having a wacky race with someone. Who is the audience for that? Because if you say kids, what kid is staying up late to watch the World Series? And not that they don't. Of course, I'm being uh, somewhat silly, but they do make it very late for kids to watch the World Series. You go talk to someone like my dad or anyone from, anyone from his generation, they'll tell you about afternoon games for the World Series, how great it was. Right. But, I think at one time they all were in the day, weren't they? Oh, the, yeah. All of the, I mean, and I'm talking about well into the era of night games. They would have all the World Series games during the day so, so that, you know, kids could watch basically. So you could grow your sport. They're always like, why isn't yeah. baseball growing? Because you made it impossible for kids to discover it and really love it unless, you know, you do. Because if it airs late at night, if Sunday night baseball is the most high profile game of the day and it's on late at night, you know, kids can't stay up to watch a game at 8 o'clock on ESPN. I guess they started at 7 now. They're not going to stay up to the end. If my kids want, well, my youngest kids, not that they're watching baseball right now, but they couldn't stay up to the end of that game, especially with all the extra commercials they're going to jam in because it's on ESPN. They make it so that the game is less fan-friendly, and then they're like, why don't we have more fans? I know, let's market the game to people who aren't fans. And then it's like, what the fuck is this? We want to make right. the game shorter. Really? I get less game for $25 fucking parking? Less? <laughs> Who says I love baseball? I just wish it would end. No well, one. I'm, well, I all I think about is Michael K. When he used to be on, on the radio for the Yankees, he would constantly at the end of the game criticize the length of the game. That was like one of his catchphrases. But he would... He would say, at an unmanageable three hours and 35 minutes. But you have to remember, Michael K. sucks. He's got a <laughs> melon head. And the only reason he's been employed by the Yankees this long is that he was a fucking shill for years. That's the only reason Steinbrenner put him in the fucking booth. That's the only so, reason. All right. But listen, we'll have to disagree on this one because Sterling and K. for my oh. Team. Oh, you they want to talk fun. about the other worst commentator in New York? Oh, listen, let me tell you something. I had great commentators my entire life with the Mets. We also had Fran Healy. I understand bad baseball commentary. John Sterling making up calls. That is high. It is, oh, it's, it's caught. It's, he started doing his home run call before it happened. That's happened multiple times. He calls home runs that aren't home runs. He just misses plays altogether. Oh, yeah. It's performance. And then Michael Kay is just unbearable. He sucks to a level. Thank God the Mets never have had anyone that bad. He's worse than Fran Healy. We're just hitting people with the local references here. It's great. We started with Crazy Eddie, which I think oh. I could be wrong, but I think it's totally Northeast. I don't know how that what uh, how how widespread that was, but uh, you know, there's a one that there's a great book. Have you read the book yet? It came out last year. It's called Retail Gangster. It's all about the 
rise and fall of the Crazy Eddie franchise, as well as the Antar family and Crazy Eddie Antar and Syrian Jews in Brooklyn. I mean, wow, it's, a, see, I... it's a fascinating book. You would love it, because I mean, it's all about New York where we grew up. And it's also an amazing story of fraud. <laughs> it's just an amazing fucking story of fraud after fraud after fraud. All right, they got us. Let's keep committing more fraud. <laughs> it's really incredible. And, you know, when you think back to our childhood, there's no way if you grew up in New York, if you were a kid or an adult or anyone, there's no way you didn't remember those. You didn't remember. There's no way you didn't see nonstop those Jerry Carroll, Crazy Eddie commercials. Right. Price is so low, we're practically giving it away. His prices are insane. <laughs> yeah, well, there was a reason for that. <laughs> he wasn't didn't paying fucking sales tax. And he wasn't doing all sorts of shit. <laughs> didn't they do? I, I think SNL or somebody did a skit. Didn't they do one where, where like the crazy Eddie guy was literally insane, like he was murdering people or something, and he gets hauled <laughs> away at the end, like he's he's an, he's a homicidal maniac. But I, I remember the I know the story you're talking about of, of the whole crazy Eddie like fraud and everything. I haven't read the book, but I definitely know the story that uh, but they were they were everywhere there back in the day. Again, I don't know how far that reached, but they were definitely everywhere. Well, remember, but, it was an IPO. So when you say it was everywhere, it became a national story because of the fraud and how it affected everything with the stock. I mean, the SEC, oh, right. the SEC yeah. went after them. I mean, that, once that happens, it's a national story. But, um, boy, where were we? Sterling and K. Okay, so Sterling and K sucks, which that's your opinion, not mine. But see, here's the thing. They were I, – I get what you're saying, but you know who also sucked by that barometer was Phil Rizzuto. And I know a lot of people would say, yeah, well, yeah. I like Phil Rizzuto. I like Phil Rizzuto. I mean, but again, it was – But Seaver wasn't good. Hey, you know, but, but here's where I'll be fair. Seaver was – I didn't think Seaver was a good commentator. And I find Seaver to be an interesting guy. At every Tom Seaver interview I've ever heard, you learn something about his philosophy on pitching. He's also a bit arrogant at times, but he's a really smart guy. But I felt he wasn't a good commentator. And remember, he started with the Yankees with Phil Rizzuto before the Mets. He was so mad at the Mets, he went to work for the fucking Yankees in 89, I think. Well, Rizzuto would just leave in like the seventh Yeah, inning. he would go he home. Would just they would, would say it on the air. Home. They would say he's on like the I way to Jersey. <laughs> right. I remember like they'd be they'd be like, well, the scooter's probably on the GWB right about now, you know? You know what I miss? You want to bring up the Yankees and we're talking to Yankees and the Mets, uh, just talking about TV. What I really miss when I think of like growing up in New York and, and local TV is I miss like the end of the era where WOR especially, but even PIX, WPIX had their own programming had local programming had their own studios i was thinking about the other day steam pipe alley with mario cantone yes the kids show remember that and you know i miss that era of there still being really cool local tv because we don't really have that much of that anymore i mean you know you have the the big channels and they try to do some stuff but you know, there's no like weird shows like Sven Gulli going back to Meet TV is the kind of show I wish we had something like that still in New York. That was well, original what, from here. That's what also killed. I mean, you know, local territory wrestling to bring it back to that was that the the platforms to air it on were drying up and disappearing. You know, local studios for any kind of TV are not really something you see too much anymore. I mean, you mentioned PIX in New York. 
for the longest time, they were a part of, you know, various different kinds of like Vakakta failed little yeah. networks like the CW or the WB. And I know there was a push for them. UPN to, 9. Right. UPN 9 or the Universal Network. But I think that PIX 11 in New York, they actually tried to to get back to some of that, but it's just, you know, doing local stuff, but they just, I, I don't know if they just don't have the budget for it. it. It just comes down to all there really is left is just the news, just like the local news reports. There's really not much else in terms of, of, you know, local TV. Every year on channel 11 for Thanksgiving. And again, for Christmas, they air March of the wooden soldiers with Laurel and Hardy. Right. And I think last year was the first time. And as long as I can remember, because what they've been doing was, the original black and white version for Thanksgiving and the colorized version for Christmas. But now they're only doing the black and white version. Yes. And they used to run, which this pissed me off because I'm a big Laurel and Hardy fan, but there would be like a gap. Like, so March of the Wooden Soldiers. Oh, yeah. Then and, they would have the one with the drunk sailor. That's right. Right. I forget the name of that one, but they stopped showing that. And so, yeah, little by little, like they brought back the Yule Log. It's like that classic 1982 yeah. You know, Yule Log. Well, no, maybe before that, I, you know, I believe that's the office of Mayor John Lindsay. So that would put that it's in the it? late 60s. Yeah. Oh my God. I maybe was, early yeah. 70s. I, I believe that's John Lindsay's office. From what I, I read an article about them finding the original Yule Log film and remastering it. And I believe they said it was John Lindsay's office. I used to watch it as a little kid. And I kid you not, I, I can remember for people that sit there and go, who watches this thing? I can tell you on Christmas Eve, like our family just sitting in the damn living room with the Yule log on, just watching it and listening to the music. People really did this. And I'm sitting there as a kid, you know, I'm little and I'm looking at it going like, why isn't the wood burning? I don't I don't understand. Like the wood just stays in the same state no matter how long the fire's going. You know, I didn't understand how any of that stuff worked. I was Jewish. I was just like, where's our party? <laughs> it's time right. for the wooden soldiers. Babes in Toyland. Let's go. Right. Where's where's the Godzilla movies on <laughs> W.O.R.? Hey, right. hey, quick plug. Because yeah. uh, this year, me and my youngest daughter have watched a lot of Godzilla films. And Godzilla FAQ, your book, is fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. Everyone should get it. Whether you're a fan of Rodan or not, get this book. <laughs> Which which ones does she like? Does she like like the classic Showa ones or the the newer ones? No, no, we only well, I I stop it at whatever uh, whenever those ended. Whatever seventy six, seventy nine, seventy nine. Yeah. That's the end of what we have here. Actually, actually <laughs> seventy five. Yeah, Terror yeah. of Mechagodzilla came out in the U S. in seventy nine, but it was seventy five in Japan. Yeah, yeah, no, all monsters attack and destroy all monsters, and uh, we're watching all those. And then I got all the Super Seven Godzilla figures. And oh, nice. They're about to put out the next wave of them. So we watch the films and then she has a little Ultraman and a little fucking Godzilla. And Godzilla 57, Godzilla 50, you know, whatever it is. They have all these different ones. And uh, Ultraman. Yeah, that's a whole other thing, too. I have the first season of Ultraman on DVD. That's a lot of fun, too. That show. I said Ultraman. Jet Jaguar. Excuse me. Oh, Jet Jaguar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that was sort of Jet Jaguar was Toho's way of competing with Ultraman. Basically. I think that's why I said it, uh, or at least that's the excuse I'm going to use going forward. <laughs> That's the movie where Godzilla throws the greatest dropkick of all time. Man, my brother, because uh, he was recently here with everything going on, he was uh, staying down in the basement and he was going through just, I have a massive uh, archive of films and stuff, uh, both physical, like, you know, VHS, DVD, 
but also digitally. Like, so if you're in any room in my house, you have the ability to access a great library. You'll never get bored. And he started marathoning the Godzillas. And in the middle of the night, I would get like a text message with a video of him filming the TV of, forget which movie it was, where Godzilla, <laughs> Godzilla has like a fight with, he's just like hitting a, a fucking rock back and forth with his head. And it was the funniest in the middle of the night. I'm like, oh, it must be an emergency. And I look at it, it's just this fucking Godzilla film. Or clip. Yeah, that was one of his big moves, just batting the rock <laughs> back and forth. That that happened in in several movies. I think he gave a suplex in one of them. I'm trying to remember which one. But you could see it's so weird because you could see the impact of wrestling for real on hey, these movies. Kevin Von Erich claimed, and again, Godzilla, based on his hands, it doesn't make much sense. But he claimed Godzilla did the claw in one of those films due to Fritz Von Erich. You're the expert. Did any of the monsters ever use the claw? Uh, well, here's the thing. I have never heard anyone say that. I heard Kevin now, say it. I literally heard Kevin say it. I've never <laughs> noticed it ever, but some of the choreography on some of those monster fights are so weird sometimes that it may have happened. I mean, the claw is not a very, um, what's the word, like visual kind of move, you know? <laughs> so it, like you could see if Godzilla's doing a suplex, right? You can tell that someone is being suplexed. If he's doing a claw, I don't know. It might just come off as him just grabbing the guy. Now I'm going to have to go back and watch them all, but I have never heard <laughs> all that of them, yeah. said. Yeah, just watch them all just to see Godzilla do a claw on somebody. You know, I don't really you, – you asked before about the later films. I haven't given them a fair chance, to be honest with you, especially like the 80s ones and then, you know, the more recent ones, just because it's such a different tone. Than right. everything that came before it. I, in a sense, you could say it's almost more like the original Godzilla film. Because, uh, you right. know, if you go from the beginning to 75, you know, it completely changes. Then it almost, in a way, reverts back. But with 1985 or whatever year it was, um, technology and, and the look of things, back to the original Godzilla. But, you know, there are certain things I do like the campiness of. And those films are one of them. So, like I said, I've never given those other ones a fair chance. But maybe I should. Well, the like you said, the the original movie is really a separate entity, you know, the 1954 movie from that whole original Showa series that runs from the late 50s into the early 70s. Like you kind of have to divorce the first movie because it's it's a horror movie basically. It's a really heavy, intense movie. And the ones that come after And that's it, just like, Raymond Burr. No, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> we won't talk about that version. Yeah, does the, he own does his family own stock in MeTV? Perry Mason nonstop, but go ahead. No, I was going to say the, the the 14 movies, I think it is, in that series that come after it, you know, there's a sense – there's just a sense of fun and camp and silliness that, you know what? I love it. Like that's what I enjoy about the movies and not everything needs to be heavy and serious. And the pro see, 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 we can enjoy campy things, right? Just not when it's in wrestling. That's but right. <laughs> when it comes to the later movies – they do take a very serious turn. They 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 try to recapture the tone of the original. And some of them are very good, but they just don't have that sense of fun that the 60s and 70s Godzilla movies have. It's, if that's what you're looking for in your Godzilla experience, you're not going to get it. See, for me, I think part of the issue is the first exposure I could think of to Godzilla that I had. Unless it was something on local TV in New York, and that kind of shit aired. We had Kung Fu Theater on Channel 5. Like, that kind of shit aired in New York for years. Unless it was that, and I don't think it was, the first 
exposure I would have had would have been Pee-wee's Big Adventure. When Pee-wee's going through the studio and they're doing that little Godzilla scene, showing the campiness, showing the man in the suit, showing the man holding the rope to pull things up and down, showing the city that he's walking on, how small it really is. And I think maybe because of that, that's kind of what I think Godzilla should be. <laughs> as silly as that sounds. Right. Yeah, and but the reaction was like we need to get away from this. Like we've we've gotten so far away from what this character was supposed to be, and we need to get back to it. And you know, I, I don't know if that well, was the right move. Well, plus the other <laughs> thing, but I don't know either. And again, you know those films much better than I, but I don't know if the campiness would have worked in the eighties. Just the way everything changed, you know, campiness changed too. So Batman was Amazing in 66 on TV in color. Would that show, by and large, had worked the same way if it had debuted in 1986 or 87? Probably not. No, definitely not. Because, you know, we remember when they were doing, you know, they when, when they were trying to like kind of, you know, rehabilitate Batman in the 80s with Tim Burton and all that stuff. The whole thing was, oh, we're trying to break away from that TV show. We're trying to get away there was this sense that the 60s Batman TV show had done a lot of damage to the way superheroes were perceived in the public because the only way people saw them was as figures of comedy. Like I've heard Richard Donner talk about when he was trying to make the first Superman movie, which was 10 years later, right after the Batman show, the biggest struggle in selling the concept was – the minute you brought up superheroes, which is hilarious when you think about it today, where every movie has friggin' superheroes in it. But the minute you brought up superheroes, the first thing people thought of is, oh, you mean like that that cheesy Batman show, you know, from the 60s? So they had to overcome that hurdle to get people to understand that superheroes could be taken seriously. But but you're right. There was like this cultural shift away from doing things in kind of a more fun and campy way. And yet <laughs> – to bring it back to wrestling, how ironic that wrestling seemed to go in the complete opposite direction. How did that happen? I think a lot of it's the people getting into it. You know, the recruiting process, or, you know, I'm using that just for uh, a loose overall term for the people that get pulled into it to decide, I got to try this. I think a lot of them were just that audience. You know, hey, I saw The Undertaker float to the ceiling. Anything's acceptable in wrestling. Or I saw this stupid thing and we all laugh about it today. Not thinking, well, maybe this wasn't good. And again, no one's setting the tone. WWE, AEW, any of the other promotions that have TV, who really sets the tone for a serious wrestling product? No one. So if you are 20 years old, if you were 20 years old any time in the last 10 years or any time in the next 10 years, what have you seen on TV that shows you that wrestling's anything other than some campy mess? Probably not very much, unless you're one of the rare people that cares about history and has sought out other things, or watches the things that people recommend and actually pays attention to it. That's one of the problem, problematic things, at least in my eyes. It's one of the reasons I really hoped AEW was going to be sports-based, not because I wanted it to be sterile, you know, not that I wanted guys in black tights wrestling in rounds and, you know, no one has a personality or anything. No. I want a modern version of Mid-South Wrestling, for lack of a better term, where 
what's happening in there is featuring these larger than life wacky people that I may or may not want to run into in real life, but nothing they're doing is winking at me. And the commentators aren't winking at me and the commentators aren't laughing at the bad shit we're seeing that we're laughing at at home. You know, I think just the overall tone not being set by any of the industry leaders is what causes people that get into it not to understand what should work and not sure what should work, what has worked and what hasn't worked and why and why not. And also how serious can you be when all this other shit's happening around you on the show? It'd be really hard to get involved with wrestling and want to do something like that. You know, I wanted to be a wrestler at one point when I was a teenager. I was like, what am I going to do when I grow up? I don't know. I'm either going to be a lawyer or I'll be a wrestler. You know, <laughs> the two natural things people pick. Right. And I realized like by the time I graduated high school, it's like, well, you know, Smoky Mountain Wrestling is now out of business. ECW has kind of moved past what it was a few years ago, because I think by the time of the pr- first pay-per-view was, for me, that was the end. I know yeah, it went I off agree. for a few years, and it was some other good matches, but in terms of ECW being unique and different and special and feeling like you needed to get behind them and help them, the first pay-per-view was the end of that. USWA was on the way out, and even as a fan, I already knew that you couldn't make any money there. I think if the world of wrestling existed at that point in the late 90s where I could go and train to be a wrestler and work somewhere where eventually I could do promos and do angles and not have to worry about someone coming up to me in the back and making me uncomfortable by saying that the boss wants me to put on a blonde wig or something. I think that would have been one thing, but I don't want to do this kind of stuff. But you get people that, you know, Howard Baum said it once. He saw someone at a show it's like reefer mania or something. Yes, I heard that. And they had a shirt that said, uh, it was either a shirt or someone said it. I forget exactly what it was because it sounds like it would be too big for a shirt. It says, uh, wrestling fans are just swole theater kids or we're just swole theater kids. I'm not a right. theater kid. <laughs> I mean, I love old cinema and I love old Hollywood and I could talk to people about that shit all day, but. I don't want to sit in a Broadway theater all day and watch that stuff. I love acting. I don't necessarily want to see a song and dance. So why should wrestling force that upon me if I'm here to see wrestling? or prof- right. I'm here to see professional wrestling. And what professional wrestling on TV has always been and was always – was how professional wrestling was always effective on TV. That's what I want to see. I don't want to see people doing their fucking talent show finally now because they didn't have the guts to do it in high school. Right, because I think what I remember the show where Howard was talking about that, and even more than what you said, I think what the shirt said, if I remember it right, it was was something even worse. It wasn't that wrestling fans are just swole theater kids. The wrestlers, wrestlers, that's right, swole theater kids, right? Which for me spoke volumes because I had seen that phenomenon for the longest time. Because to go back to what you said a while back, is that. Now you've got where it's been this way for so long that you've got a generation or more of wrestlers themselves who now this is all they know. This is all they've ever seen. This is what they grew up with. You know, at least the guys that were doing it in the 80s and 90s that when the business was changing, they had grown up on, you know, other stuff like Shawn Michaels, you know, can talk about Ric Flair and things like that. But the guys now, 
like their earliest memories of wrestling is Bastion Booger. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? So it's like a whole different like what are you gonna do with 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 people like that? Like to to them, that's the old school, which is it's scary to think of. Like there have been times where I'll criticize something in wrestling as being unrealistic or whatever. And someone will say, yeah, but you're okay with, you know, an undead zombie who nobody could hurt and, you know, comes back from the dead. And, you know, obviously they're talking about The Undertaker. And I'll say – I thought they were talking about Chris Jericho. (laughs) 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 Right. Well, that's a shoot. We're talking about the worked version of it. But but see, (laughs) they're making the assumption – that I'm okay with that. Now I'm not going to sit here and dispute the, the undertaker was an incredibly successful act in wrestling. And I'd be an idiot to, to think otherwise, but also from a creative standpoint, the undertaker really was, especially on a main, you know, mainstream national level. The undertaker was the beginning of really, truly completely breaking down the fourth wall and saying, we're not, we're abandoning this idea of suspension of disbelief because it was the beginning of really asking you to believe something that you know is completely fictional, like right in your face. And so even, you know, putting aside the business savvy of doing it, um, don't make the assumption that I'm okay with that from a creative standpoint, because to me, that's the beginning of, of the change. So, but again, for the people that are saying that to me, oh, well, those, those are the people who to them, the undertaker is old school wrestling. Here's a question. If the undertaker dressed the way he did, if the Undertaker didn't sell things the way he did, and I don't mean that in a negative sense, but, you know, the sit-up and the way he did things in the ring, especially early on, like you watch that match with Hogan at Tuesday in Texas, it's a fascinating match. The way he didn't really sell much, and he would constantly come back at you like an undead zombie. If you gave him the lightning for the entrance and the music, if you gave him all that, minus supernatural powers. Right. Again, it could still be Paul Bearer lifting the urn and the Undertaker sits up. Because that could be a coincidence. This guy knows his friend. He knows when to raise the urn. But if you took out all the supernatural shit and the floating to the ceiling in front of poor Tenru and the great Kabuki, <laughs> would he have been just as big and just as effective? Yeah, because, the well, the, the Undertaker character over the years, bec- they leaned more heavily into that. Like, like Did it actually the- help, though? I guess I've never really thought about it. I'm, t- I'm asking you the question as I'm thinking about it. Did it actually help? Was it needed? Or And, you know, I'm going, you know, um, I just recently thought about this because I was talking to someone. You ever read William Goldman's uh, Adventures in a Screen Trade? No. He has this quote. Everyone who ever has read it that I've talked to about it, they always come back to the same thing. He says in there, screenwriter William Goldman, I figured out if I had made all the movies I passed on and passed on all the movies I made, I would have broken even. If The Undertaker was everything he was, but they took out anything that was over-the-top supernatural, would it have made any negative impact on the career of The Undertaker or the business he did? I don't even know if I could answer that. I mean, it's a mind-boggling question because you have to wrap your head around a business that has changed so incredibly much and a huge part of the reason of why and how it's changed is directly related to him as and the success of his character and 
that's been such a big part of it. It's sort of like, you know, look, the audience that WWE has now and 30 years going and now you have like fathers taking their little sons and telling them there was this guy, The Undertaker, when I was a kid and all this stuff. It's like, I, I don't know. I feel like it's so baked in to what he was and his success. And I can't even imagine it any other way. I don't, I don't, I don't know if he would have become the, if I may pardon, pardon my borrowing a term, if he, if he would have become the phenom he did, if he was just, oh, this is a really tough wrestler that nobody could hurt. And he kind of looks like he's dead and that's it. Like, I don't know, maybe he would have just gone the way of the million other gimmicks they had at that time that were like that. Like, Hey, we have the wrestling plumber. We have the wrestling hockey player. We have the wrestling, you know, undertaker, the wrestling garbage man. Like, would he just have been one of those? I don't know. Maybe. No way. Cause when did they first introduce it? I mean, 90, no, he debuts in 90. Oh, you and, mean the supernatural? Yeah, because he goes into the feud with the Warrior in '91. They do the angle on the funeral parlor, which again is a weekly interview segment hosted by his, you know, Adams family manager. So, I mean, that's kind of the extent of how far they pushed it at that point. Just the campiness of Paul Bearer, actually. You want to talk about campiness? The campiness of early Paul Bearer with the Undertaker does the Jake thing. Again, no real supernatural elements yet. And then what's after Jake? Kamala? Right. I think it's when the when he loses the urn. Wouldn't you say that like that's the beginning when 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 Mr. I guess it was Mr. Hughes or stole the urn and they tried Summer of 93. Right. Mr. Hughes, yeah. And they tried to play it off like this had taken away Undertaker's power. And I was actually at the Monday Night Raw in the summer of 93 where Undertaker came back. He had been gone. The urn was stolen. And it was the first time that he ever turned the lights on that they ever, you know, he lifted his arms and the lights came on. And that felt to me like it was the beginning of a shift where they really wanted you to believe that this guy had magic powers. And that was like about two and a half years into it. Hey, me and you were both at the first ever Monday Night Raw. That's right. I remember we were talking about that. Yes, yes. Um, I think a lot of people were there. Um, Mike Johnson was there. I talked to him about it. Yeah. It's like New York uh, Insider Royalty. Were there. I was like the 30th <laughs> person to buy a ticket. I have like the, I still have the ticket stub. Now, if now if I remember right, there were no assigned seats because I, right. I remember I remember running ran, in there, <laughs> yeah, like stampeding cattle, and it was like. 40, 48 flights of stairs, whatever the hell it was, to get into that ballroom, and you ran. We and ran. And it was freezing. And it was fucking freezing outside. So they I opened a, up the door, and I've never been in that building before in my life. And all of a sudden, you know, we were probably all in the same rush. We just fucking flew in there yes. and got in that room as quick as possible. There were – I had a friend, uh, a, a, an old high school friend, because when that show – not an old high school. That's ridiculous. We just graduated like six months before. But there was a guy I knew from high school who was like near the front of the line. And I was nowhere near there. I showed up with like my best friend and my dad. I think it was maybe my, my sister might have been there, too. And the guy's calling me over. Hey, Solomon, Solomon, I got your ticket. I got your ticket. Come get your ticket. You know, he was trying to get me to the front of the line. And I'm like an idiot. I'm going like, no, Joe, I got I got my ticket right here. And he's like, no, no, Solomon, I got your ticket. Come on. 
And I finally figured out what he was trying to do. And, and we made it to where we were near the front. And that helped because we wound up, I was in such a sweet spot. I got, like I've talked about a billion times, but I got on TV. I got a sign on TV. I was like within the first few rows. I'm like, you can watch some of those promos and you could see me in the background staring like an idiot. And, you know, while, while these, well, like Crush is cutting a promo on Randy Savage or whatever. You know, but it wasn't. Yeah. No, I was going to say, you know what drives me nuts, but then I want to say it before I forget, because I never heard anyone else talk about it. And it's like the one big takeaway from that night. Max Moon comes out for his match and you can right. barely see this. If you go back and watch the footage, he shoots off the rocket from his hand once, shoots it off twice. The third one, he aims right at the face of the production guy on the floor and blasts him in the face. And then he just walks in the ring and people rush over to that guy who got shot in the face. It don't happened, remember that. It happened live in the room. I watched it. I was like, holy shit. No one reacted to it. And if you watch the video, they didn't focus on it. So I'm always like, what happened there? What was that? Did they work their own thing for themselves that no one ever referenced? Go back I and watch the tape. Wow. Max Moon comes out and he just blasts this guy in the face. You have to, you have to look for it. You'd be paying attention to Max Moon and who did. <laughs> to see it, but Damien Demento was in the main event that first Raw. Right, with The Undertaker. With The Undertaker. And the Steiners, think, that was the biggest deal ever. Getting well, to see the Steiner Brothers live. Sign. Yeah. I got my sign on TV. It was the Steiner Brothers sign. They beat the uh, the Spiders, right? That's right. And uh, well, actually, I don't, maybe, I don't remember who they wrestled. You may be right. But I had my Steiner Brothers t-shirt because I had gotten to go to Halloween Havoc 92 in Philadelphia, one of the worst fucking shows ever. And the Steiner's already gone, but they still had their merch. It's like CM Punk at AEW. He's still the biggest merch seller. He hasn't been there in months. And I had my Steiner Brothers shirt. So I was really, really happy to see the Steiners in WWF. I felt real, you know, in early 93, I felt real optimism about where WWF was going as a fan. It, you know, it was either the Spiders or the Executioners. It was some kind of masked, like black masked tag team that the Steiners squashed. And I think the first match on the show was Coco Beware and and Yokozuna. I think that was the first match. I know people have talked about this before, before me, but I'm pretty sure that was the first match. Well, the first match, the dark match, was the Cheetah Kid versus Johnny Rotten. Oh, right, yes. Ted Petty slipped on the rope. And I remember as a 13-year-old kid feeling bad for him because <laughs> he slipped on the rope, and that caused that New York crowd to just turn on the match. That's all that it was took. A, that was a rough, that was a tough room. That was different. It's such a shift, especially in that era when you're going from like the tapings they would do for WWF superstars and WWF challenge. Like the audience was so innocuous. They, they, there was almost no chance would ever break out. It was very like they would cheer the faces, boo the heels. It was very like, you know, I don't know, kind of. Not it didn't have a lot of personality, that, but as most wrestling crowds did not have in those days, they were it was just a different time. But those raw crowds, man, that especially in that era when you didn't have you know, it wasn't like today where every crowd is influenced by the ECW arena crowd, yeah, like that, yeah, that really. Monday Night Raw Manhattan Center crowd was rough, and and it probably took a lot of getting used to for the WWF crew, which was not really used to getting that kind of reaction you know you go back and watch that and it's literally the who's who of new york like uh inside wrestling or smart wrestling you have mike johnson you have you some of those other shows you have 
Captain Ivan Rothstein. I don't know how many people remember Captain Ivan. He's there. Blackjack Brown's like taking photos from the second row. It was a it was a really cool era. I liked the Manhattan Center era of Monday Night Raw. Probably my favorite era of Monday Night Raw, actually. I told Mike when I was on when I was on uh, his show, Mike Johnson, that I remember. You know, I'd see him at a lot of shows. And it's funny, you were talking about being like the smart fan in the crowd that is like ruining it for everybody else because you're, you know, you're, you're trying to show how smart you That's are. That's the Rockin' Rebel. Right, <laughs> right. But I teased him on Where's Tommy Cairo? I mean, we were killing him, yeah. <laughs> but that's what he was doing at the first Raw. And actually, the couple of Raws that I went to at the Manhattan Center, he would, you know, he was a young guy then. I don't think he was, he, you know, wasn't doing any kind of wrestling media stuff. He was, you know, a newsletter fan kind of a thing. And he was standing there going, you know, like, oh, well, I remember this guy when he worked here. And, you know, I, I I'm looking for he, he was saying things like I'm looking forward to seeing how Mr. Hughes and, and Bret Hart work together, like what kind of a match they can they can like put together. You know, he's trying to show that he's really smart and he's got all these. This is 1993. He's got all these fans around him that are just have no idea what the hell he's talking about. You know, he's going like, well, WCW passed on this guy. I think they should have signed him. He would have been much better off there. And, you know, people are just, you know, totally not on his level at all. You know, but you you had that mix of of fans and that's what made that crowd so different, I think, is, you know, there were some people that were smarter in that crowd than you would find in an average wrestling crowd. Did you know Ben Lagerstrom at all? The name is familiar. Ben, who has vanished uh, many, many years ago. I got along with Ben, mainly because every time he would try to con me, I'd call him out, and then he realized he couldn't anymore, and he respected me, I think. But Ben was a little bit older than me, although he told people he was like 15 years older than he really was at times. Because he had a very deep voice. Ben was the guy who really, even more than Dominic Valente, Ben was the one who popularized the free wrestling hotlines in New York. But he was also hanging around like the Lower East Side Wrestling Gym and, you know, various places. And he knew a lot of the locals around wrestling and, until he pissed them off or ripped them off or whatever it was. But I'm always interested because I never hear anyone talk about him. He has vanished. And I'm always interested if anyone actually knew him. And I thought I'd ask. I remember Dominic Valenti, and I know thanks to your show, I've learned that he's apparently still doing it, which is unfathomable. Amazing. That's fucking incredible. <laughs> I remember Coach Kurt, and I remember Nine seven six one 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 one. Wow. See, I wouldn't have been able to yeah. remember the number. That's I used amazing. to call it from the, uh, from the cafeteria at Long Beach High School. So by the time yeah. lunch was over, I'd know all the scoops. And see, you have see, you're younger than me. I was doing it from the cafeteria of Brooklyn College. <laughs> that's that's significantly more embarrassing. Hey, hey it's still but, a quarter. It's just a quarter. It's still a quarter for either one of us. But I was doing the same thing, and I remember Mad Al, the Mad yeah. Al. That was the one I I used to call probably the most actually. Yeah, Ben was the one who started it because Ben was the one who found that company. I think it was EFLS, which was an answering machine service, but they let you do like a five minute message. So he put the two and two together and was like, I'll just do a five-minute wrestling hotline. And once he realized he couldn't really make money with it, he kind of moved on. But once he did it, I, be I believe, from what I remember, because I was around for all that, him doing is what caused Dominic to do it. And then Mad Al started on Ben's show. And then when Ben stopped, Mad Al just started doing his own thing. I was friends with Mad Al. I, haven't I still am as far as I know. I just haven't spoken to him in a long time. But uh, I was really close with Al. He's a good guy. and. 
Then everything went to hell in a handbasket and it became, I mean, it sounds crazy. We're talking about wrestling hotlines, free wrestling hotlines. No one's making any money. We're just giving wrestling results and it became ultra competitive. <laughs> and then this kid from fucking Staten Island named Dimitri and this other kid from, I say kid, they were older than me at the time. They, they still are if they're alive. This other kid from uh, slightly upstate New York who called himself Vinny, but his real name, I think, was Aristotle. They started doing just like these ultra racist, crazy yes. fucking, you know, just using the N word like crazy yes. and the S word and the K word and every letter of the alphabet that there's a word for. They were using it and they thought they were just going to like get away with it. And they were like bragging, we got the biggest hotline. I mean, it was also stupid. And I don't know how much he's ever talked about this, but they, they started really harassing Evan Ginsburg uh, over him being Jewish. And Evan actually went. Uh, and I may be getting this slightly wrong in terms of who and the details, but I believe Evan went to the police and filed a report and the district attorney filed charges against these guys and they got in a lot of trouble. Wow. I have to talk yeah. to Evan about that. I've yeah. never. I spoke to the ADL at that time because they started making anti-Semitic comments about me and the Anti-Defamation League had just opened up a new office. Uh, actually, now that I think about it, I don't know if I called Long Island or New York City. But I spoke to them at the time. It became insane, like 97-ish, I would say. Yeah, because I remember those names, and I definitely remember the racism because I was calling. And like you said, it's like the mad – you know, the shows just kind of all blended in my head after all these hotlines. But I remember calling in to the show you're describing, and I'm going, am I the only person – that is calling this show because how in the world are these guys able to say these things? Like I couldn't believe it. it you know, the, the terms they would be using to describe the wrestlers, maybe black wrestlers or, or Pacific Island wrestlers and, and, and the door Spanish wrestler, wrestler, everyone. Yeah. It was ridiculous. Yeah, and, and the, and the way the jokes they were making. And I remember going like, how are they getting away with this? Like it wasn't even, wasn't even like in the slightest bit funny. It was just mean and hurtful. And and you could tell it was coming from a place of real hate. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like I, I'm the kind of person where I, I believe, you know, in, in movies and comedy and things like there's a way to do ethnic humor and, you know, racial humor and things in a way that's humorous. And you could tell it's not from a place of hate. These guys were just hateful guys. They were just truly racist, bigoted, anti-Semitic guys. And they were spewing this stuff on a wrestling hotline of all places. And, and think, I don't know, just assuming they could get away with it. It was bizarre. And they did get away with it for a while. I mean, that was the crazy thing because, you know, we started, you know, various ones of us who were being harassed by these idiots who would, you know, go out and say just these anti-Semitic or in my case, anti-Semitic shit on their fucking hotline. They were calling you out on the hotline? Good oh, grief. yeah. Well, because I was on Dominic's show selling tapes, and I was close with Mad Al, and I was friends with Ben. I was friends with everyone that they weren't friends with. So they right. would try to call me out, and I was like, fuck this. I'm calling that answering machine service. And even the answering machine services, like, eventually they had to have, like, papers filed against them. But not by me, by the way. To get, like, shit pulled down, they refused to cooperate and take any of these things down. I said, go listen to it. They're throwing the N-word around like nothing. We don't care. You know, it, it was, it was great. Evan Ginsburg, again, I've never heard if Evan's ever talked about this or not, but Evan is the one that actually stopped them because Evan is the one who actually filed charges and that was it. They got, they went to court and no one ever heard a peep from them ever again. 
Wow, I've got to talk to him about that the next time I talk to him. Like the Staten Island stud, that was another one. This guy would come on the air drunk. Like, he was just awful. Yeah, there were so many weird little hotlines that popped in. Ben, one time, there was this kid, Jose Rodriguez, had a hotline. And he pissed Ben off somehow. Ben hijacked his hotline. But he didn't do it, like, by getting his password or anything behind his back. He literally said, let's record an interview on your show. And somehow Ben got his password and took over and midway through it announced it. He was like, by the way, I'm in charge now. This is my hotline. And Jose Rodriguez goes, no, 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 no. And I'll never forget it because Ben had that deep voice. He goes, yes, 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 yes. And then that was the end of the fucking show. <laughs> oh, And there's no recordings of any of this stuff. I mean, no. maybe there's some somewhere from some people, but it was a crazy time. It's an unreported part of wrestling history that if you were around in New York, it's probably hard to understand how big they were because word got around, especially Dominic's line. Dominic, for a while, they're like, in the 90s, the late 90s, when things were really picking up, it was insane. I know because I was selling videotapes on that hotline. I would get orders from all over the country. The key was you didn't really have the internet yet. It was in that magical window where the internet was not had not yet exploded. It, it, it kind of existed, but it hadn't taken over yet as the main kind of source of, of wrestling communication and information. And so it was like you know, that window of time where the hotlines were the main place that a lot of smart fans were going to learn things and, and get their information from communicate with each other. You basically had newsletters and hotlines. I mean, that that's what you had at the, at that time. And yeah. it's hard to explain to people who weren't around. It's like, it's like you're trying to describe, I don't know, like some ancient time. It's so far removed from the way things are now that it's almost impossible to fully give somebody a sense. Like you said, there's no recordings of it and it, it, it's impossible to get uh, a true sense to people that didn't experience it of what it was like. I mean, we're living in a time where people don't even like to make a phone call, you know, to call anybody, let, let alone to call a wrestling hotline. So it's just such a, such a shift, you know? Yeah, and you know, I don't think people understand what it was like, that feeling the first time the Observer arrived in the mail. That it was like, holy shit, what is this? And then what would become like a weekly ritual of waiting for it, getting it, and then immediately reading it from beginning to end. You know, whatever people want to say about Dave now, and you know, various people have problems with him, and I have at various points and about various specific things, but you can't take away his influence. And again, it's a sensation you couldn't have today, but I was 13. I don't know how old you were. That first time you got the Observer in the mail, and it's still at Staples when I was getting it, and you took out that top center staple, it was like it was mind-blowing to read the Observer. Well, believe it or not, I, and I, I've said it here before, but I, I knew of the Observer. I didn't become an Observer reader until I went to WWE. So that's 2000. For me. Wow. Was, that's crazy. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I was, you know, I was smartened up and all this stuff and I had been, you know, working for the company. Obviously I would be and things like that, but I, you know, I, and I'd experienced all these hotlines and various fanzines and things and the internet, even at that point by the, by 2000, you know, there was a lot happening on the internet and I knew what the observer was. I knew what the torch was, but I didn't actually get my hands on it and read it 
until 2000. And I would have been, I guess, 25 at that point. Yeah. I was a late comer. Boy, this, this conversation has gone everywhere to the moon and back. I'm sorry. I'm so in ways sorry. I could. No, I, I say this <laughs> as, as this is a good thing. This is a good thing. This is the way I want it to be. I always say this to people and they're always like, oh, I'm sorry that I brought this up or we talked about this. And I'm like, no, that's what the show is. This show, like I've said to other people, this is like and I can vouch for this for sure. This is basically like a phone call that we would normally have. And we just happen to hit record. And that's it. <laughs> that's really what it is. Well, I'm sorry I did this, and uh, there were better things I could have done with my time. And uh, <laughs> no, Wait this, a this was a lot of fun. And if I, if I could say something as I'm losing my voice here at the end of the show, and please forgive me, everyone. I'm just getting over being a little under the weather. A stomach bug destroyed everyone in my house, except for Suzanne, luckily. But I do want to say one thing. And, uh, you know, uh, first of all, it's an honor to be invited to be on episode 50. I know that's a big deal for you, and it's a big deal for this show. And I'm so happy and proud of how successful the show's been and how many people love it. And I just want to say that, you know, one of my goals with Arcadia and Vanguard going forward uh, with wrestling projects and beyond is to only have the best people. And whether it's the wrestling news or shut up and wrestle, and we have other projects beyond even audio that we'll be working on in the future. I'm just so uh, delighted and so uh, happy to have you on our team here because I only want the best people. And to me, you're one of them. So I just want to say that here publicly on the show that I am so happy to have you on the Arcadian Vanguard team. Well, thank you. Now we have it on record, and that's really great. <laughs> but but no, but- I'm drunk. I'm high. <laughs> I'm being chained up. Someone's hitting me. I don't you're know where held. I am. Who am you're, I? <laughs> you're being held at gunpoint. No, but see, but but no, but that does mean a lot. If we could turn this briefly into mutual admiration, it means a lot because. Um, I was a listener to, to, to your stuff before I became part of the team. So, and an admirer of what you've been doing, as I've told you and, you know, watching from afar and listening from afar, I had the thought in my head years back, like, I, I wish there was some way at some point that I could get hooked up with this whole operation with these guys because I love what they're doing and I think I could actually contribute. These are actual thoughts that I had. So to be able to do it and to make it actually happen, it's just one of those things. It's it, it's like, you know, I'm not one of these big manifestation people, but but it is. It, it really was to me and, and, it's, and it's an honor to be involved. And I have to say, especially after now the, the praise that you've heaped on the show – and and now that we're on the record, I'd like to officially put in my request for episode 100 of Shut Up and Wrestle <laughs> to be Jim Cornette. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll see. If you thought it was hard to get me to agree to a time in a day, you're about to really have some fun. Well, that's why I'm giving myself a 50 episode <laughs> advance notice. I got 50 weeks to try to help you out. I think we'll be able right. to accommodate you one way or the other. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Brian. This has been just a pleasure and a joy, and we'll we'll have to do it again sometime. I would love that. There you have it, folks. My conversation with the great Brian Last for this landmark 50th episode of Shut Up and Wrestle. And I hope you will keep listening to the next 50 with as much ardent fervor as you listened to the first 50, because we are going to keep the shut up and wrestle train going as we proceed with episode number 51 next week's episode. 
during which my guest will be fan, promoter, manager, and raconteur, Carmine Despirito. Next week, episode 51 of Shut Up and Wrestle. And as the weeks roll on, we have more great guests on the way. I've been mentioning them lately. The widow of Bruiser Brody, Ms. Barbara Goodish, will be coming onto the show. Midwest independent wrestler Attila Khan, longtime Northeast referee Dave Dwinell, and I'm proud to announce one that I just did the other day, which I will be looking forward to posting, and that is the noted and celebrated early pro wrestling historian Mike Chapman, one of those fascinating guys who bridges the gulf between amateur and professional wrestling, an expert on the history of shoot wrestling in particular. That was a great conversation, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. So keep following Shut Up and Wrestle. Our website, of course, is suawpod.com. You can also find the podcast at Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Podbean, Spotify, wherever you get your great podcasts, you will find Shut Up and Wrestle. And as I mentioned, the Facebook group. Please do join us in the Facebook group Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. And there you will see that we continue the party that we begin here. In addition to that, of course, there is the wrestling news, as Brian and I spoke about. The wrestling news is your daily morning wrestling newscast. All you need to know about what's going on in this insane business of ours, thewrestlingnews.com. If you're interested in picking up a copy of Blood and Fire, as I mentioned, those audiobook versions are on sale half off. There's also the print edition and the digital edition that you can get at Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com or wherever you buy your books. I am the co-host of the PWI podcast, which you will find in the same location as you find all your other favorite podcasts that I mentioned before. Also, the magazines that I contribute to, Inside the Ropes magazine, you can find at InsideTheRopesMagazine.com, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can find at pwi-online.com. If you happen to be looking for me on social media, you will find me on Twitter or Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. On Facebook, my author page is Brian Solomon Writer. And on any one of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my worldwide web author website. And I encourage you, to do so. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Ryan R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and leaving you with the words of the great Jack Benny who said, age is strictly a case of mind over matter. If you don't mind, it doesn't matter. So long, wrestling fans. Hey!